Hey guys, Clay Thompson here. I need to give a shout out to my mom. She said I should read the newspaper before games to take my mind off things. It's become a pregame ritual, but it also is how I stay informed. Keeping up on local news, sports, or just about anything, I read the paper. So should you. Whether it's digital or print, it doesn't matter. Go to clayoffer.com and subscribe today. Local news delivered your way, digital or print. Stay informed on news that matters to you. Go to clayoffer.com. Brought to you by the Mercury News, East Bay Times, and Marin Independent Journal. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on this episode is Dee Snyder. He's got a new album called For the Love of Metal. And yes, we have Run DMC's Daryl McDaniels. We talk about, of course, Walk This Way and his book, 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide, and if that wasn't enough, from Paul McCartney's band, or Wings, it is Denny Sewell. Lots and lots of great content, and joining me on the phone to co-host this week is the one, the only, Rob Mount from Lou Graham's band. Good day, Rob. How are you? Hey, Mitch. Good day to you. Good Good to talk to you. Yeah, always a pleasure. We we spend a lot of time texting back and forth about rock news, but... uh, I don't believe we've actually done a co-hosting spot together, right? Am I correct? No, this is the first time, and, uh, you know, I listen to the show all the time, and uh, excited to be on, and, uh, you know, hope to hope to do more if needed, so, you know, it's like yeah. to be here. You're, 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 like, you're like the color commentator on a, on a hockey game, so this, <laughs> this is great. So, <laughs> you know, I just had your boss, if I can call him that, Lou Graham, on last week, and it was such a great, great interview. I mean, Lou is absolutely a pleasure to talk to and we spent a lot of time talking about the mr moonlight album and the song white lie uh not a lot of of those songs make it to the set list but are you a fan of white lie and rain and and the mr moonlight album oh yeah 100 percent, man that that probably i would say that's my favorite album to be honest with you i love that record and uh songs like rain and and under the gun um under the Gun, I used to be in a foreigner tribute band, actually, way back in the early 2000s, and, and that was one of the, the songs we played. And um, so, yeah, I love that record. I know Lou's a huge fan. We talk about that uh, quite a bit. And, um, yeah, great record. Too bad not a, not enough people know about it. But Yeah, I know. Yep. Well, it, it came out at, a, at an awkward time. I mean, it was 94, you know, hair metal and, and sort of the power ballad era uh, was dead and done. Uh, Nirvana was taken over, Soundgarden, everybody started wearing flannel and staring at their feet. And so a lot of albums <laughs> fell through the cracks, you know. Uh, even, you know, Def Leppard yeah. had an album called Euphoria a couple of years after that, which was a fantastic Def Leppard album. And people are like, meh. And, and, and you yeah, know, that happens. Uh, of course, Lou has been touring and you've done shows with uh, Dennis DeYoung and others. Lou, of course, has done these. What do you, I don't want to call them reunion shows, but reunion spots or, or guest spots with the current foreigner. Uh, how is that for you to see him go out and do those ones? That's, it's got to be kind of exciting to get sort of a kick to see, you know, the guys, right? Those two back together, Mick and Lou, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, coming as a, as a fan, not as a, as a guy in Lou's band, but as a fan of music and growing up with foreigner. Um, you know, it's, it's, I'm just, I'm just like everybody else. Who's a huge fan of foreigner. It's awesome to, to see these guys back together again. And, 
you know, they mended their, their, their ways, I guess, to, to some extent or most extent when they were inducted in the songwriters hall of fame a few years ago and to see them on stage together, you know, playing together, you know, I know Lou, Lou loves it. He's, he's, you know, totally uh, happy about it. And uh, you know, yeah, it's awesome, man. As a, as a fan, I love, I love watching, you know, the YouTube clips and can't wait for the DVD to come out. And, yeah. you know, as a guy in his band, I'm especially, you know, proud to see that too, you know, to see Lou back uh, with Mick, you know, and, and the only thing I wish is I was up there playing too, but <laughs> <laughs> right. You and, Mi- that, you, know. <laughs> you and Michael need to yeah, be there, you know. but now, now just before we get over to D Snyder and of course his great, great new album for the love of metal, um, just as a drummer, doing the foreigner songs you know when we think of dennis elliott for you playing his parts what is that like and and how technical and how sort of great for the lack of a better word was dennis well first of all it's an honor to be playing those songs you know and and playing playing i mean i don't play them like dennis plays them exactly because i am who i am um i like to say that i play it in the spirit of dennis so to speak you know I mean, a lot of a lot of a lot of guys have played those songs in Foreigner, and before me, Lou's brother Ben was playing in the band, and so it's an honor to be in that line of great drummers. Um, I mean, Dennis. I mean, first of all, one of his big guys he loved to play or loved to listen to was was John Bonham, who's one of my biggest guys. And and when I listen to um, you know, especially live recordings of Dennis playing and how he tuned his drums and played, you can hear some of that Bonham sound and, and thunder in his playing. And, uh, you know, and it's the same school that I grew up on, although obviously he's a little older than I am, but, uh, yeah, I, I try to keep the spirit there. You know, I throw my own stuff in, but I still play for the songs. You know, I'm not there to, uh, to show off or, or throw in stuff that doesn't fit. You know, those are awesome songs and I'm not there to, to, to screw them up by <laughs> overplaying in them, you know? So, yeah, he's, he's a great drummer. I loved his sound. I love listening to him play. I still go back and listen to the original recordings just to see, you know, what parts I'm missing, you know, because <laughs> you kind of drift to do your own thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I should be doing this. Or I forgot that. But, uh, nah, but Dennis, great stuff, man. Yeah, Dennis was great. And uh, speaking of great, of course, uh, D. Snyder, formerly, I guess yeah. we can say now, of Twisted Sister, has a new album that came out at the end of July called For the Love of Metal. It was incredibly, incredibly surprising and i know that that sounds almost like a backhanded insult but it's not i put it on and i just thought okay well what's this going to be and it was great it was just this great in your face you know 35 40 minute opus of of rock songs and and you know d does a, a great great job now were were you a fan of twisted sister growing up or or, or back in the day i should say oh absolutely yeah i mean when, back when i was a teenager you know, we uh, collected vinyl, you know, way back in, in uh, the early 80s and stuff when I was growing up. I, matter of fact, I have um, an original pressing of their first album, Under the Blade, and uh, it was on, I think, Pete Way's label called Secret Records. And I, I have an original pressing of that. And there's also uh, an EP called Rough Cuts on that record label that they put out. So, um, yeah, man, I love that. I mean, to me, the song, You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, was was is one of the best metal songs ever. I mean that that song just crushes, you know, and love them. Yeah, that and, 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 and yeah, and burn in hell. You're gonna burn in hell. Arr. 
<laughs> right? Yeah, and I also I also like his stuff he did with uh, with Desperado and Widowmaker. I even saw Widowmaker uh, a couple times live. I know they didn't last too long in the, in the mid uh, early mid nineties, but I got both those uh, CDs, and uh, that was a great band too. I mean, he just he was on fire in that band. So yeah, huge fan, huge, huge fan. Yeah, just great stuff. Now, before we we listen to D, let me just remind the listeners that the Dead Daisies are on tour with Hookers and Blow. The band, of course. Um, they start August 15th in Cleveland, Ohio at the Agora Ballroom and then run all the way to September 16th in Los Angeles at the Roxy Theater. They are in Montreal, uh, where I'll be on August 26th at the Fufun Electric. And I like reminding folks that Fufun Electric, translated into English, means electric ass. Yes, what a great name for a bar. Uh, the band, of course, features Doug Aldrich, formerly of Whitesnake and Dio, John Karabi, of course, of The Scream and Motley Crue, Marco Mendoza, who spent a lot of time with Whitesnake, Thin Lizzy, and the Black Star Riders, Dean Castronovo, personal friend of mine, who has, of course, played with Bad English and Journey, and David Lowey. Their new album, Burn It Down, is out now. Do yourself a favor and pick that up. And, of course, Hookers and Blow have Dizzy Reed from Guns N' Roses, Alex Grossi from Gun, uh, sorry, from uh, Quiet Riot, and Robbie Crane from the Black Star Riders, which is a personal favorite of mine. That band is absolutely phenomenal. And of course, when Robbie gets to Montreal, we will go up to St. Viator Bagel because that's what we do when that band comes into town. When Robbie comes here, we go, we go bagel hunting. So there you go. Dead Daisies. North American tour is starting August 15th. And now here is the one, the only, D. Snyder. We are speaking with a singer, D. Snyder. The new album is For the Love of Metal, and it is absolutely phenomenal. I have been listening to it over and over and over again. And quite frankly... There's not a bad track on there. There's nothing where you go, eh, I can skip that one. No, you can't. D, uh, Mitch, you give me chills, man, but I thought it was just me. <laughs> no, but, but I mean... I thought it was just me. But I'm putting it on going, oh, man. Because, you know, you listen to, you know, when you're recording an album, the process, a lot of hearing the things over and over and over, you know. But I put on the album the other day, just like listening to it as an album. And uh, for the first time, you know, in a couple of months, actually, and I was going, Damn. Oh, I forgot about that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, damn. Oh, man. Oh, this one kills. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel like it's one of those albums. It really is. And, you know, when you get when you're doing prep for an interview or, or for a review, you'll sometimes listen to the first, you know, minute, 30 seconds. And you go, OK, I got it. I got it. I'll move to the next one. And I literally could not do that with this one. I started off with Lies or Business and I went, all right, that was awesome. And then tomorrow knows, knows concern is like. All right, that one was awesome. And I got down for the love of metal at the end, and I was like, huh, all right. I just spent, you know, whatever it was, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, and I didn't take a break, and I didn't skip, and I was like, okay, we've got well, guess a... guess what? I wanna, uh, this, this, this plays to what you're saying, and, and it's 35 minutes. It's right. like a punk album. I was, somebody said, how, how long is the record? I went and looked at the... I was like, oh, my... 35 or some it's less than 40 minutes the entire album and that's and some reviewers said and that's a credit to jamie josta and his production team the belmore brothers charlie and nikki um who were really at the helm of of crafting these tunes pulling all the pieces together they made everything tight and to the point it's like no waste you know it's, it's just pure meat 
and everything is that, but you don't feel like the song is too short, like, oh, it was, it's not enough there. It's just, they're, they're, they're spot on. And it's, it's less than 40 minutes, the entire record. And that's 12 songs. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So in fact, let me start there then, because, you know, during the eighties, when CDs came out, we all got into temptation to make these 17 song albums that were 79 minutes long. And it, and it was just like, oh, and you look back at the 70s and you had Aerosmith and Cheap Trick and albums were 28 minutes long, 30 minutes long. That's the right time, right? I mean, you, you've gotten it back to where it should be. No waste, efficient, um, right? I mean, that's that's the proper time for an album like this. Well, I, you know, I think as, as long as, okay, artists... Uh, and and uh, and that's the that's the word for these people. They've been deliberately self-indulgent, deliberately over the years, and it's self-important, self-indulgent. And we, the listener, has often suffered through it. <laughs> so, I know I have, and I you know and I you know I'm old enough to remember you know the bands of the late '60s, early '70s, and things really got self-indulgent, and. You know, and then all of a sudden, you sort of have a return in the 70s to the, the shorter song and people leaving, you know, the Gentle Giants, yes, ELP, you know, and all this prog, you know, and, 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 and there are fans of this music out there to this day. There are people who love the progressive thing, but then there's those of us who just want a damn short punch in the head and wake me up and let's go to the next one. And that's where I come from. And that's where Josta comes from, for sure. Yeah, so so talk to me about Jamie Jasta because he he has you on his on his show and he throws out this challenge to you and you take it up. First of all, why take up the challenge? Because for years you've been saying, eh, nobody wants to hear new music, nobody. And you took the challenge. What was it about Jamie that convinced you that okay, all right, I'm down for this? Well, I I asked two questions before I accepted the challenge. And you go, let's go back to the tape. He said, I challenge you to make a contemporary, a hard, a metal, contemporary metal record. And I said, who's producing? He said, I am. Now, I know Jamie. I know more of him more as a person than his work. I mean, if, you know, I know the, 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 the smart guy that he is, the business mind that he is, the fan of metal that he is, the fan of mine that he is. And then the next question I said, the next question I said, who's writing? Because I can't write it. And I tried. I stopped writing in 95 after the second Widowmaker record because I realized I was listening too closely to what other people were doing and imitating what they were doing to try and stay contemporary and not writing from my heart. And with Twisted Sister, I was just writing. I was in the thick of things, and it became part of what became the 80s glam metal, hair metal, metal sound. But it wasn't by design. It just was a genuine outpouring. Now I realize you are literally studying these other bands and trying to sound like them. And that's not true. And that's why I stopped writing. So I knew, I said, Jamie, if I write, it sounds like the 80s, or it sounds like I'm copying people. And Jamie said, D everybody's going to want to write for D. Snyder. And I said, then I accept the challenge. And, but still, you know, still, Mitch, going in, I had 
trepidations. All right, people, look it up. It's, all you got to do is you got a phone. Just put trepidations in there. Anyway, and I was trepidatious. <laughs> I, I know, I know what that means. Not you. I'm talking to the audience. Everybody was going trepidatious. These using the big words again. Uh, tre- uh, I was trepidatious, and I but I but I was giving it you know a shot. So you know we did not have a record deal. We did not have a budget. And Jamie envisioned an album, and he believed there was a place for a D. Snyder album, and there would be a company for it, but we didn't have that. So we went in there with a couple of songs to test it. And the first songs we did were American Made and Running Mazes. And on my side of the glass is a glass that you, you know, the, the, the sound booth and the guys in the engineering room. And I'm on my side of the glass going, whoa, this is awesome. This is great. And they're on their side of the glass going, whoa, this is awesome. This is great. This is great. Like, we each, you know, Jamie said, I've challenged other people, D. Nobody's ever accepted the challenge. Suddenly I had the responsibility and the trust that you gave me to make this right, to make it great. And so, you know, and, but we, as we started moving down the path, it just started clicking. And once we knew it was working, and then the outpouring from other bands, and, uh, you know, Lamb of God, Disturbed, uh, kill switch. People started contributing, and people were calling Jamie because he's playing them stuff. They're going, "We want to do this too." And again, no budget, no money. Everybody's just joining the party for the love of metal, hence the title. So, so talk to me then about songwriting skills and how do you keep your chops up? I mean, you haven't written like you said since the mid '90s, but. Have you just abandoned it altogether and say, well, I'm not going to write ever again? Or, or, you know, how do you, do you see what Jamie did and go, ah, okay, now you've inspired me? How do you keep no. your, no. No, I, 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 um, I don't write. Well, I, I do write. I've written, um, I don't write often. I write when I need to. And, um, and, and if it's old school. Uh, I've written, I wrote a, a couple of songs uh, I needed a couple of songs for my musical, The Rock and Roll Christmas Tale, when we moved from Chicago to Toronto, and I rewrote the show. So I wrote the songs. But it was straight-ahead rockers. You know, uh, the band that I that in the show is a, uh, in The Rock and Roll Christmas Tale, is a bunch of middle-aged guys who can't let the, the 80s go, and they're still in an 80s hair band, even though they're, like, blowing out of this spandex. Um you know, so uh, and so that was no problem. And now I've I've sold the show to uh, Netflix, a children's animated show, and it's about a there's a, there's a it's a children's show, and I'm writing music for it, but it's straight ahead old school rock and roll, and I can write that for days. But to write genuine contemporary metal music, even though I'm a fan of it, uh, my kids are all headbangers. I've been I, I've listened to the stuff. I've been to the shows. It does. I can't get it to come out of me naturally without being forced or trying too hard. And it, it sh- and music shouldn't be like that. It needs to be genuine. And that's why, you know, uh, having these great younger uh, musicians and artists writing for me was just amazing because they come from that genuine place where they're just writing from their souls. And they're writing for me, which was great. And for people who say, you know, how can that be? Hey, Elvis didn't write one of his own songs. Frank Sinatra didn't write his own songs. And guess what? I'm not going to name names, but some of your favorite metal artists don't write their own songs, even though they put their name on it and buy out the people who write the songs. I'm not going to say who it is. 
Mitch may know. Well, we're not going to talk about that. And you write for Celine Dion. No, (laughs) the one side. Yeah, well, my name's on it, and I got paid for it. Um, But uh, but the fact of the matter is, um, you know, uh, you know, it's not a matter of, you know, not everybody writes there. Even even in bands, you know, the singer, you know, Vince didn't write the songs that he was singing. It's can I deliver the songs? Can I believe the songs? Can I, can I, can, can I execute? And in, from this album, one thing Jamie did was we spent a lot of time talking about where I'm at, what, what I wanted to say on this record, what I feel strongly about, my passions and my feelings. And, and so these songs were very much um, uh, tailored to fit D. Snyder. So when I get in there, people go, man, it's, it, it, it sounds as genuine as it could, because I believe every freaking word. And if there was something in there that wasn't resonating, I would tell Jamie, you need to change that, or how about we say this instead? And someone said to me, oh, so you did, but why wouldn't you take credit? You don't take credit for a line or a few words. You know, that's, that's not fair to the true creator of an entire thing. That's just an arrangement. You know what I mean? But I, you know, so I, everything that, uh, it sounds real because I believe everything I'm saying. And Jamie was very careful to make sure that I could stand behind every song that he was bringing me. Yeah, and, and, and you can. Uh, now, of course, you, you did mention you were trepidatious about making new music. Now that it's out and it's, and it's this good, does it motivate you to, to, to get back on the horse and say, okay, maybe in 2019 we got another one? And, or is it like, no, this was a one and done? Where do you sort of see yourself in terms of new music going forward? Is this the start of something new? Or is just, this is it, and enjoy it, folks? You know, um, I've wanted to make new metal for the longest time. And Twisted, and not NU. Okay, even though, not, even though I don't hate NU metal, I like NU metal. I like Limp Biscuit. I still do. Uh, you know, um, but, uh, the, the, you know, I've wanted to, but I haven't felt since 95, I've just felt like it, I couldn't be genuine about it. And like I said, I've been a fan of it, and I've been listening to it. Um, you know, Twisted wanted to make new records. I said, I, I can't do Back to the Future. I can't make old-sounding records in you know for 2006 or 07 or whatever it was you know i can't do it i'm not going to do it nobody really cares about it not enough people care about it and it's it's you know it's too heart-wrenching to put your soul into something that for the most part is dismissed it doesn't get airplay it doesn't get video play it doesn't get you know it's just it's just a thing but anyway i but i digress um so i've wanted to do this here's where I've wanted to be for the last 20 something years. And Jamie's helped me find my way there. Um, Napalm has already picked up the option for the next record. Uh, the two record deal, they go, we're in. I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. We didn't even, this one's not out yet. They go, no, no, no. We're not giving up on this one. And we're not, you know, we're, we plan on working this for a while. And, you know, I've been blindsided by this, Mitch. Uh, you know, usually you plan your tour in concert with the, uh, that's a bad, bad choice of words for the audience. In, you, know, it's in, in, um, you know, you plan to record the album and the tour. It's a, it's a game plan. It's a, it's a grand plan. Right. We had no deal. We had no budget. We had no, we didn't know what we, we didn't know was going to be received as well as being received. So we've been caught off guard. 
by this reception, but plan on following up. You'll see more shows as we go ahead toward 2019 than right now, because believe it or not, this year is like booked for people, not me. It's like it's, it's tough to really book things um, on this short notice. So, you know, we're promoting, I'm doing some shows, but as uh, I'm rejoining Rocktopia, by the way, I've been asked to join the cast oh, wow. and going out on, I'll be out on the road with Rocktopia. Um, so, uh, you know, so this is, but this is something now that I'm here, I hope to do more and, and, and it's, and, and, and it's been received the way it's been received. And, you know, moving forward, um, I think I will be more involved in the writing process as I come to understand my place and, you know, and where I fit. And uh, particularly on the lyrical end, even though Jamie was incredible in channeling me. I, I've jokingly said he was like Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs wearing a D. Snyder flesh suit, you know, standing in the mirror going, I'd fuck me. You know, <laughs> you know it was like creepy how much this guy gets me. And how, how creepy, okay? You probably read this, but it, it's worth saying on your show out loud. During the making of the album, my mom <clears throat> was hit by a car and she was killed. She first was brain damaged and in a hospital for two months and, and, and then died. Um, and Jamie said, you want to stop? I said, no, I can't stop. Metal is that release for me. It is that solace that I find in roaring you know, that we all do, the dark emotions. The emotions are released through metal, and we feel better, and I need to get this out. So we're recording, and the 13th track, you have 12, there's So What, was redone metal style from my last album. It's nice. on the, only on the Japanese release. Nice. I'm sure it'll pop up online, though. But anyway, the 13th track, it was, I just buried my mom, and it was called I'm Ready. Jamie said, I've got a song called I'm Ready. And I'm going, all right. There's 13 songs, man. I think we got enough songs for this album. He goes, no, I really think this will be a good one. You should, I, want you, I want you going to do it. So I'm in, I'm recording, and suddenly, I, and Jamie wasn't there. Nikki Belmore, who co-produced the album, was engineering and doing the session. And I stopped, and I said, and I realized the words I'm singing. They hit me hard. The words were, death leaves a sorrow no one can heal. Love leaves a memory no one can steal. And I said, Nikki, did Jamie write this about my mom? And he goes, yeah, he wrote this for you. you know, and I'm, I'm getting choked up saying it because he was watching me go through this. And he writes me this, you know, powerful song about facing mortality and loss. And, you know, to, and that's the last song we recorded a week after my mom was buried. And that's how you talk about channeling somebody or climbing in somebody's skin or getting somebody. Jamie Josta got understood D Snyder and that's on every track not just I'm ready yeah and, and just uh, of course my condolences for your mother I, I remember that when it when it came out and, and that just it hits home it's it's ooh, uh, some so my condolences there um you know, we, we talk about heritage acts and legacy acts, and, and you look at them out there right now, the, the foreigners and, and the white snakes, and, and they're playing sheds and stadiums with Journey and Def Leppard. What would be so wrong for Dee Schneider to make an album that sounds like Stay Hungry in 2018 or 2019? The fan base would certainly uh, appreciate it, or, or they would certainly devour it. But I get a sense that it's mostly that you're reticent. You're just like, nope. I don't want to go back to there, but but would it be horrible or, or, or wrong for you to do that, to, to give 
you know, a, a classic sounding album. But, you know, th- this is a fact. Right. Go look at the record sales, well, even the downloads for Whitesnake's new album, Foreigner's new album, Sticks' new album, Def Leppard's new album. They're pitiful. Yes, and I want to apologize to the true fans like you, Mitch, like many other people out there, the true handful, and you are a handful of fans who 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 embrace not just the old but the new from their artists. You guys should all should move to Europe, where where people are much more appreciative of heritage artists and always respect you for for the work you've done. Um, but it's not enough when you've had millions sales record sales, when you've had, and it's not just economics, when you've been all over the radio, all over television, all over Letterman and, and, and you know, the, the Tonight Show and all these shows, it's really hard to go back. It's really hard to just make records for your own head. And that's basically what you're doing it for. And, you know, I, I'm not making music to not be heard. And will that happen with For the Love of Metal? It might. And if that happens, will I continue on? I don't know. But I do know that um, I'm loving the fact that people are hearing this record and paying attention to this record in the community that I care about and reacting so positively to it. And I hope that it carries through. I mean, I was the number one, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a small battle, but I haven't been there since the 80s. Number one most added metal record at, at Metal Radio. You know, number one uh, most added video at, um, on, on Music Choice Metal videos. I mean, it's a small victory. It's not, they're not big things, but I haven't been there in decades. Decades. And you know what? For, from my perspective in the, in the media, you're also sort of the number one interview to go get these days because it really is exciting. You know, sometimes you get a, an interview request for a band and you go, eh, nobody wants to hear about them. But I was excited not only to talk to you because I know you, but because this album is worth talking about. Now, some of the other stuff that is worth talking about, you have uh, this deal with Netflix and uh, and I love the name of this com- production company, Titmouse, to make these uh, cartoons or animation series. Yeah. But you're also talking about the horror production company and rebooting a major franchise. Talk to me a little bit about getting into filmmaking and, and you know, being the Duke of Detroit and, and, and all that stuff. And, and uh, what is this major franchise that we are rebooting? Can't tell you. Can't tell uh, you. The ink's not dry on the contracts yet. I, we haven't formally announcing. Um, the uh, um, this franchise, although it will literally make people's jaws drop, but it's been, um, uh, you know, a, we are uh, contracts are being signed right now, literally. So, uh, and even before that, we will go to a few major players and offer them the opportunity to partner with us on this because it is going to be a reboot, relaunch, reimagine, remake and on all major platforms. So our goal is to not just um, start with a feature film, but to launch a television series in, uh, you know, in, in, together with it off of the release. So this is going to be a major thing. There will be a, you know, a variety announcement. I think, uh, well, 
It'll be in September. Um, I know what's going on. Okay. Yeah. I know the schedule right now. But, um, you know, this was, uh, you know, we, I heard uh, that there was some rumblings that the creators of this franchise, still owners of this franchise, were looking to do something. And um, in the pitch of my life, I cold-called these guys and um, convinced them that they should go with my production company. My partner is a guy named Michael A. Alden, who has two Tony Awards and two, three Emmys, uh, but he hasn't, they're not for horror. And, uh, but, you know, that we went in there and uh, convinced them that we were the team to the, the right play, and they went there. So anyway, we got this franchise. We also have uh, multiple horror films in various stages of development and a couple of horror television shows, and we kind of, um, we were actually moving forward with a couple of things, and we've kind of um, put them back, burnered these things, because this relaunch and, and announcement of this franchise reboot will be so massive, it, it'll sort of define our company. So we figured it's a stronger way than coming out with a, I've, I've written a, a new movie. Um, I, you know, people, people have said to me, why didn't you write another, you know, uh, like After Strangeland, why did you write something new else? And I said, because I didn't want to make something uh, repetitive and, and Strange Land was so groundbreaking. I didn't want to, um, unless I had a really fresh idea, I didn't want to just write a horror movie for the sake of writing horror. And then over 20 years later, I come up, I get the idea and this new horror film that we're going to be moving forward with, but we, as I said, we back Bernard, uh, is like groundbreaking, as the way Strange Land was groundbreaking. It'll change. It will change the horror game, and uh, so and so. I'm excited about that. So there's a lot going on here besides rock and roll, but uh, heavy metal rock and roll. But right. uh, uh, this is my. This is what I'm at this moment in time. I am just grinning ear to ear. My wife says I haven't seen you this happy in a long time. I think this is what I love. Well, you see, that, that's what I was going to ask you. Is this sort of the the best part of your career because you don't have to make records that the record company is telling you to make you're you're doing sharknado you've got a podcast you're making metal albums uh animation series i mean is this the most satisfied professionally that you have been in your career because you you could have just been the we're not going to take it guy but you you are so much more than that and it's it's exciting to see as a fan and it's exciting to see from my perspective is you know is this is this the best part of your your career I've said my glory days are now. Uh, I've been saying that for a long time, but I've always felt that way. I'm, I'm not a glory days guy. I don't live in the past, and that's you know tomorrow's no concern. Is that whole philosophy about me being more interested in talking to you about what's going on today than what I, what happened 30 years ago, or what might happen 10 a year or two from now? And that's because you know. And that doesn't mean I'm not proud of my past. I'm extremely proud of my past. It's just like I'm not that – I just can't live there, you know. So, um, yeah, so it is the glory days right now. And um, it's very exciting to go through my day and go from, like, you know, after I get done with this call, then I, you know, move – if I just done a whole bunch on the record, and then I move to the animated series, and then I've got business calls on the – franchise reboot and you know and i just keep my sons are always marveling I, how do you change hats like that because mentally i literally change hats i just go okay now i'm doing this now i'm doing this now i'm doing this rocktopia dates are booked in october in october um 
So I'll be going out there and I'll be singing Led Zeppelin and um, Aerosmith again, you know, which is real. This, this, that's a real challenge, by the way. I, do, I deliver the goods. But people say to me, is it hard to sing like you're singing on For Love of Metal? I say, no, that's my default position. Roaring like that is what I do very naturally. Singing nicely or cleanly, uh, and which I can do, that's, that is the challenge. But that, to me, is what it's all about, challenges. Yeah. And when I, the animated I, show, Michael Alden called me up and said, what do you think about doing an animated series? I said, a kid's show. I said, great, Sure. I hung up. My wife said, you want to do an animated show? I said, "Not never. <laughs> I never even thought about it. But when, he, when Michael called me and said, what do you think about creating a cool kids show? I said, let's do it. It's a challenge. And as a parent, I certainly see the need for it. Yeah, you, you've, you've never backed down to a challenge. And see, that's what I like. We're, we're, we're 27 minutes into this interview, and we haven't talked about the Twisted Sister days. And there's no... There's almost no need to talk about the twist. They, they were great, but all this stuff coming up is exciting. So you announced, I guess, or at least that's where I saw it through Twitter, that you're going to come back to the podcast world. And then I saw later on that you said that it was going to be a talk show. Um, when does this boot up? When does this start? When does the uh, competition between you and I get heated? <clears throat> yeah. Um, right? <laughs> Right. No, but, but. Oh, yes. Why not? Let's, 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 let's go with that. Let's go with that. Um, it's uh, really, um, really up to me. And right. um, one, you know, I, I went down this podcast road before, and I, I wasn't just with all the things I do, and I was doing a lot of traveling, a lot more than I'm doing now. And it was just, I just couldn't keep up the consistency, and I didn't want to start like, you know missing shows and and so I, I i pulled the plug on it but now i feel like i know where i, I want to be with the show and i'm and i'm more ready and so really it's a matter of i can't and you know I, I won't give let the um the people who are distributing my show uh the pleasure of announcing it formally uh though but uh it's really you know we're deciding when to start i want to make sure that when i start there's no stopping and you know and i'll be totally frank um, that may mean me uh, pre-recording, you know, two, three, five shows, getting in, in the, what they call in the can, as we say in the business, so that I have a buffer that just in case I, you know, I run into these moments where, oh, you know, crap, I can't get to a show this week, um, you know, for whatever reason, um, I have a buffer there, you know, so, and I think I may just do a little stock, what they call stockpiling, uh, and before I get rolling, so I just make sure that once I start down this path, it's consistent, just like House of Hair, House of Hair, 20 years, 1,150 shows, I've never missed a show, you know, never missed a show. Yeah, and that's you, you commit to something, you get it done. So I just want to make sure that uh, that I, you know that I, once I commit, once I start, it doesn't stop. Is it topic specific? I mean, are we talking political show, rock show, or is it it's detalking and whatever is whatever, or is that for the announcement down the road? Well, you know, I mean, I think I could tell you right now. I think the reason they asked me is for the same reason. I said, what do you? I said, that, well, what? Are you looking for a show-wise? And he said, your career covers so many arenas. You have access to so many different genres, whether it's 
rock or Broadway or horror or, you know, uh, or wrestling or, you know, is it we want the Snyder's world. We think that the, the, that the range of, of the subjects you can talk about and people you can talk about uh, and people you can talk, not people can talk about, talk with is, is so broad. And that will be the appeal of the show is just this unique um, life you have, unique careers you have, and what it affords, and, and the interesting things it allows you, affords you to talk about weekly. So I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be, it'll be a wide range of subjects. Oh, I can't, I can't wait. Now, I don't. How much more time do we have? Are, are you, are you good for another couple of minutes, or do we have to? I give you a couple more minutes because um, I'm, I'm, you're up against um, going out to lunch with my wife. Ah, so, uh, all right. She's not screaming. Hang, point to going. She doesn't scream, by the way. She's not looking at me, going. Are we going? Yeah, where she isn't right at this minute. So uh, let's continue for a few more minutes. Yeah, I just, I just, just quickly uh, back on the on the horror movie stuff. Um, do you see yourself in front of the camera, or is this mainly you're going to be behind the scenes, you know, producing, organizing, uh, financing? Where do you see your role back in, in, you know, getting back in front of the camera? First of all, are you Canadian? Yes, of course. I said, Debbie Rashawn. You guys say whore. It's like so disconcerting. You say, you say uh, getting back into the into horror films. I'm going. I'm, I'm not doing porn. Uh, yeah, you guys. It sounds like you're saying whore. It's horror. It's it's too horror. Simple. A boot. It's not whore. It's all a boot horror. <laughs> it's not whore. Debbie Rashad, We had Fangoria Radio, a horror radio show, and she, a scream queen in the horror genre would say whore all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's already too far to go, what? What are, you, what are you saying? Whore? Anyway, um, you know, I've looked to, I love writing, uh, and I've been you know, continuing to write and create things on that level. Um, and uh, I love producing, uh, you know, being behind the camera. My goal is to get out from in front of the camera, off the stage, quite honestly. Because um, I was say you can't beat gravity. And, and nobody's getting any younger. Uh, and I don't know if I want to see me up there at 70 or 80. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I don't. Um, so, uh, you know, yet when you're a writer, you can, as long as you can create the words for an actor or actress of any age or color or, you know, or sexual preference, if you can write a convincing 15-year-old African-American lesbian if you can write the words that, that she can act, and, and, and nobody cares that I'm not a 15-year-old African-American lesbian. You know, so uh, it's like Quentin Tarantino. You know, uh, he's very capable of writing for characters that are not Quentin Tarantino, you know, uh, personally. So um, I really enjoy the writing and the producing, and I think, you know, and that's where I planned to find myself uh, moving forward, I'm trying to put myself more and more there. That said, I'm astounded by the fact that my voice and is becoming more, and I'm still being pulled back to the stage, to recording, to performing live, to to Rocktopia, to all these things. You're doing voiceover work. I'm, I'm uh, my voice has become uh, the demands on my voice continue to increase we're at a time where I'm trying to make it less of the thing and be more of a creative 
Right, right, right. And, and, and of course, the voice, my favorite voice character you did, of course, was the Duke of Detroit. I just love the name, that the Duke of Detroit. And and then quickly, uh, Sharknado 6 coming out soon. Um, fun little series to be involved with. It, it, a little cameo, I would imagine. It's a cameo. Um, funny, the funny story goes, though, they were just on Sharknado 2. And I was at a horror convention. And uh, my uh, table was next to the Sharknado uh, 2 table and where the director was. Um, and um, we were next to each other. And at some point, he, he comes over. He goes, hey, D. And I turned to him. I said, no. And he said, what? I said, I know what you're going to ask me. No. Not going to be in Sharknado. And, uh, he was, got, and he got sad and he walked away. I shut him down. Cut to the call comes in for Sharknado 6. And now it's become this thing. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's this, you know, I had a pop culture, you know, whatever. Is that geist moment, silly, fun thing? And um, I agree to do it. And uh, the first, now here I, I arrive in Romania where we film. And uh, the first, I walk on the set, and the director walks up to me and says, You said no. <laughs> And I said, "You win, you won, man. You, 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 you're, you're on the sixth one, and you've created something that's, you know, that uh, everybody wants it's, to be in. It's irreverent. I mean, you know, and and it's amazing what can get done at a horror convention. It's it's unbelievable. Um, yes, the magic of horror. <laughs> the magic of horror. Uh, Dio was all when all those horror fans get together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, so do I. Uh, For the Love of Metal is is an absolute uh, pleasure to listen to. Fans need to check this out. Um, old and new, uh, you know, well done. And uh, I, won't that, that, keep I just want to say that is my greatest pride is that it's not being reviewed as a heritage record. You, know, you mentioned all those bands like Def Leppard and White Snake and Farner, you know, making these, you know, period records true to who they are i'm not criticizing them um you know jamie johnson's goal was to uh it was to bring d snyder to to the metal community now and create a record that was uh, that would anybody also didn't want to he says look there are there are fans of old metal old school metal you can't get to budge off their you know out of the 80s but there are also others that are more open-minded, and he wanted to bring them along for this ride and create what he calls a bridge album that would connect, you know, where I was with what's going on today. And, you know, bravo, Jamie Josta and company, because, uh, and thank you for yeah. helping me make this record. That is just that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the Christmas present you buy him this year is going to have to be uh, somewhat significant because he really has put you back on the map, and, and, and it's it's great. Uh so an autographed box set isn't going to do it. Okay. That's I'm glad the... you told me that. <laughs> Thank you, D. Always a pleasure. Go, go have pleasure. lunch, and, and we'll do this again soon. Pleasure, man. I'll talk to you again, Mitch. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to D. Snyder. Of course, the new album is For the Love of Metal. I very highly recommend that you do check that out. And uh, there you go, Rob. I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, let us get over to DMC from the band Run DMC. He had a book came out in 2016 called Ten Ways Not 
to commit suicide. It talks about mental health and his struggles with suicidal thoughts. So we talk about that. It is a very sort of um, introspective, I guess is the word, uh, interview with uh, with Daryl or or as we call him, D. Uh, just it, it, I, check that out, folks. So so just hold on to that, um, Mr. Rob. Growing yes. up, were you? at all influenced by run dmc and what they were doing i mean do, do you see them as sort of the you know the godfathers of that style and that format well um growing up was i a fan of, of their music and, and that kind of uh, hip-hop genre I, I gotta say not not really on my radar but um i you know i i i, I totally um, honor what they've done in, in terms of respect and, and the, the, the groundbreaking, uh, you know, stuff that they did. I right. mean, you know, they were, they pioneered pretty much the genre, you know, so you yeah. gotta, you gotta admire that. And, and as a rock fan like me, when they got together with Aerosmith and they redid walk this way, I mean, that was actually quite a refreshing take on the song and, and quite a discovery. I mean, MTV was all over it. Much music was all over it. And I think you'll have to agree, they saved Aerosmith's career, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, man. I mean, I remember I remember when that came out and it threw me for a loop at first. I was like, wow, what the heck is this? But, you know, after the, the shock wore off, because, you know, I mean, nobody's ever seen anything like that before. Um, you know, I, I thought it was really cool. And, um, yeah, as far as Aerosmith goes, w- when you think about that time, you know, that was pre- permanent vacation and that was i think right after they did done with mirrors which is kind yep. of their comeback album and that thing didn't do any that did nothing for them it, which is too like bad because it's a great album, album right i mean yeah, yeah i love that song let the music do the talkings my favorite <sighs> aerosmith song <laughs> what's a joe perry song but well but, no, well um, you know what yeah, uh, they, i'm gonna go with my fist your face on that album that, that was such yeah. a my fist your face and that's for sure that's that's yeah. It is sort of there, since we were talking about Mr. Moonlight and, and Foreigner, it, it's sort of Aerosmith's Mr. Moonlight. It's a great album, a lot of great songs, sort of right album, wrong time. It just fell right between the cracks, yeah. right? You know? Yeah, and and, and, and after that, you know, they, they did this, uh, well, I guess you got to thank Rick Rubin for kind of pressing uh, the the collaboration, you know, between Run, Run DMC and these guys, but... What a stroke of genius, you know. I mean, that, that was you, you couldn't hide from that song once it came out, and uh, it totally saved, I think, you know, uh, Aerosmith's career, and, and yep. uh, oh, I agree. you know, shot him up to the next thing. So yeah, so good stuff. As a drummer, uh, when you listen to what Joey Kramer was doing on the original "Walk This Way," that boom, boom, you know, I'm not a drummer, so I can't, I can't even sing beats. But what was that <laughs> like for you? And, and when you look at Joey Kramer and what he's done. Um, you know, just, just quickly talk to me about that, starting at, at walk this way. And what do we call Do we call them drum riffs? Is that, are they riffs? What are they? What, what do you call them? Um, but, but yeah, you could call it that, or, you know, you know, you get that as you can call it like a drum intro, sort of like, you know, rock and roll has a drum intro, you know, it's, it is a signature beat that he came up with and what a great, what a great drum beat, you know, and, and, you know what? I don't know if he came up with that or not. I don't know the history because a lot of their drum stuff and a lot of things they do. Steven Tyler, who was a drummer, came up with a lot of their stuff. And, you know, like Lou Graham, who's also a drummer, and Steve Perry, who's also a drummer. 
Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the singers come up with a lot of this stuff too, but uh, it's a great drum beat. I remember years ago being in a cover band and we'd play Walk This Way and we'd probably go five minutes of me just doing that drum beat while they riffed off other songs. It was almost like a, you know, like a hip hop version in the beginning. And then we, we eventually went with the song and man, my back was killing me by the time we got to the song because to sit there and play that drum beat for five minutes before you actually start the song is murder. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine now. Drummer, you're used to you're used to moving around when you play drums. You're not in one position playing the same beat. You know, you're doing a fill or you're changing things up, and you know, tough beat to keep going for a while. But that that's a great great song. Joey Kramer's a great drummer. He's you know solid as a rock. I mean, just just a great solid drummer. You can't beat him for that stuff. So. Oh. Absolutely. Now, of course, uh, you mentioned all those drummers became lead singers and so on. Is there going to be a Rob uh, Rob Mount lead singing uh, in your future? <laughs> oh, man, no way. Matter of fact, um, <laughs> I put out a video of me and Mike goofing around in the Detroit airport a couple weeks ago singing some Motown songs. We were going through the tunnel and I was kind of goofingly singing along. I think a lot of people took it serious. Um, but you know, I, I wasn't given any bonus points for trying to sing. And I think people mostly told me to stick to drumming. So if you want to go to my, uh, YouTube channel and check that out, you'll see that the answer is a definite no, yeah, no, noticing. And so, uh, let us get back over here to Daryl McDaniels. Of course, uh, the book 10 ways not to commit suicide came out two years ago. We talk about that. We talk about DMC comics because he is a huge comic book fan, superhero fan. We do talk about Aerosmith and uh, Walk This Way. And so here he is, the one, the only, D. We are speaking with Daryl McDaniels of Run DMC. Daryl, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you again. Well, good to be here, man. I love Montreal. I can't wait to get back there. Yeah, you know what? There's a lot of great stuff uh, happening in Montreal. In fact, you know what? I'm actually going to start with that just real quick. Uh, There's a local Montreal band up here called Slaves on Dope a few years ago. Yep. You and Jason Rockman got together. You made some music. Uh, Yes, we did. So so talk to me quickly about that. Now, you've got Coming Like a Rhino featuring Chuck D. That's also um, there. So so let's let's start now for everybody for everybody listening. Go to YouTube and check out the video. <laughs> yeah, it is. So so let's talk quickly yep. about that and and meeting Jason because you know slaves on dope are a uh, what's the word for it new metal heavy metal yeah. kind of band. Yeah, and you're Daryl from Run DMC, not a uh, exactly, but um, I'm the king of rock though. Yes, that's I'm right. I'm the king of rock. I don't right. want to be the king of hip hop. I don't want to be king of rap. I did that. You know what I'm saying? I, that's the, when I was a little kid, I never liked soul music or black music. There was just something about Harry Chapin and Joni Mitchell and Janis Joplin and the Stones and the Beatles and Bob Dylan and Crosby, Stills, Young and Nash. There was just something about the sound of rocket cars with drums. You know, because I, you know, I wasn't in a disco, so I was a little kid. And by the way. When me and Jason met, it was deeper than just music. Comic books. We love comic books and superheroes and imagination and creativity. So for me, when I was a little kid, there was just something more appealing um, about the music of Harry Chapin and Jim Croce and, you know, John Cougar Mellencamp. And Bob, maybe because they were telling stories. You know, soul music, you know, Al Green and Marvin Gaye, that was kind of like my mother's music. I'm a kid. I don't even care about girls. 
I like comic books and, and race cars and, and bicycles and, and, and skateboards. So all of that youthful exuberance that was inside me, inside of me needed a release. And that release came through hip hop. But I didn't want to rhyme on James Brown. I didn't rhyme, I didn't want to rhyme over George Clinton. I wanted to rhyme over the hard ass rock beats that I grew up loving when I was a kid. So that's why I think I was so, you know, when I said I'm the king of rock, it was me wanting to live my rock and roll dream. I never care. I don't care about Michael Jackson and his afro and his high heels. I want to go for Elvis jugular. I want Jimi Hendrix to bow when I walk in the room. You know what I'm saying? I want the Beatles and the Stones to say, come on in the room, Daryl, and let's jam. And even though it was, it was part of my imagination, you know, just for me thinking those thoughts allowed it for, allowed for it to come to fruition. So when I met Jason, the, the, the thing that actually brought me and Jason together is when, when he first interviewed me was our love for Public Enemy. And I love Chuck D. I think Chuck D's the greatest rapper, MC, hip-hop person that ever lived. And I never thought there would be a guy who, 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 who would love Chuck D and Public Enemy more than me. And I had to give it up to Jason because I thought I knew every rhyme, I knew every every trivia question about Chuck, everything about flavor and public enemy. But at the end of our conversation, Jason proved that he was the champion public enemy lover when he rolled up his pants leg and next to his Superman and Green Lantern and Thor and Oak tattoos was the public enemy emblem. So I had to give it up to Jason. And I found out that, you know, even though Jason's from Montreal, like you said, he's in a rock metal band. I'm Daryl McDaniels from Queens, New York. Our love, it goes beyond just music. It's about, you know, everything that has to deal with our, our existence, comic books and music and public enemy and just being a good person. So it was a match made in heaven. Yeah, it really was. You know, it's because I had interviewed you just previously and Jason sent me this note and said, oh man, I would love to interview Daryl. And I just yeah. knew because, you know, a lot of people, when I interview, they'll send a note saying, can you set me up? And it's like, that's not how this works. But I just knew right. that you and Daryl, uh, you and Jason, uh, yeah, I knew there was going to be something there. And that was great because you, you flew into Montreal, you recorded a track for a Slaves on Dope yeah. album. And yeah, for the album. Yeah, and what a what a day that was! And and anyway, it was such a great thing. Um, and now, yeah, now they're on my album, and uh, you know, for everybody out there listening, you will soon see Slaves on Dope and DMC on stage together. Oh, that's great! <laughs> such a great band. Such and and and, and I love when yeah, this kind of great. stuff happens because that's that's sort of what makes music great. It's not about preconceived right. and reading analytics right. and. It's exactly, about right, right. It, it's, it's that vibe. Yeah. Um, yep. Listen, it's all I, about the life of music. Yep. Oh, oh absolutely. Now, I, I don't want to, you know, turn this right into to, to darkness and stuff, and, and and get into a more serious right. topic. But, um, you did write this book, Ten Ways Not to Commit Suicide," came out a couple of years ago, and I I do want to talk yeah. to you about that because we've seen in the last couple of years so many uh, rock stars. Uh, commit suicide and we're of course not yep. seeing a whole bunch of people who work at at uh, the 7-eleven and stuff you know it's not just rock stars it is a major it's every day it's an epidemic yeah. so so yeah, the little kid my wife my wife my wife's friend's best friend's 
12-year-old son has a regular, everyday argument that kids and their mothers have. So he runs out the house. Two o'clock comes. Oh, it's cool. Three o'clock comes. Oh, it's cool. Four o'clock comes. Oh, it's cool. Five o'clock comes. Now, okay, something's going on. Six o'clock comes. Call all the friends in the room. Have you seen him? No, we didn't see him. This and that. Seven o'clock comes. You're sure this and that. Eight o'clock comes. Now it's like, okay, okay, Emma, this is serious. Do y'all have a secret hideaway? So, you know, one of the kids, yes, we have one. They go to the secret hideaway. They find the kid hanging there. My Lord. That's wow. crazy. And there's always, even if you don't notice, the thing is, a lot of times in this life, we always ask people, how are you doing today? Well, we really don't mean it. We got to look people in the eyes and say, yo, how are you doing today? When they say, I'm all right. No, you stop them. And you say, you stop them and you look them in the eyes and say, no, no, no. How are you really doing today? And when you say it like that, some people will get the message that this is the time for me to release what I'm going through so I don't be alone. So that little kid is no different from Chester or Chris Cornell or me. I was there. So. You know, the reason why I don't, the reason why I'm not ashamed to talk about it is because I don't want it to keep happening. Anthony Bourdain, yeah. a couple of months ago, you know what I'm saying? So, like you said, it's not just the rock stars, it's all of us. It's all of us. So, so talk to me about what compelled you to write the book, because, you know, from yeah. from a fan's perspective, we look at this and you go, well, Daryl, he's in Run DMC, He he's... You know, mm-hmm. they, they're a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They stare at a stage with Aerosmith. Yep. He doesn't have problems. He's a millionaire. He can do right. whatever he wants. Uh, right? <laughs> right. So, so, so why break that public facade and that public image and say, you know what? I was mm-hmm. a little flawed. And, and if that's the wrong word, then right. I apologize. But you know what I mean. Uh, you right. know, right, right. Um, you know people, and, people, were only seeing, people were only seeing the mighty king of rock. There is none higher, the invincible son of Bifrid, the devastating Mike Controller DMC. And during that time, even prior to that time, and even after, you know, the King of Rock Aerosmith era, I was going through things. But then there's the thing that creates the stigma that exists among anybody and everybody going through a mental health issue is this thing called being ashamed of what you're feeling or what you're going through and being ashamed to speak up and tell somebody because you're really going through something, but you don't want the world to think that you're psycho or you're a weirdo. So what do you do? You don't really have the solution when there are things that exist that can help you. So you do the crazy thing like self-medicate because you don't know no better. You don't seek help because you don't know any better. Um, You don't want to embarrass your friends and your family because a lot of times when you do tell people, I'm not okay right now. I don't want to live no more. I'm not feeling like myself. Um, There's something wrong with me and I don't know what it is. Even your friends and family look at you like you're crazy. So what happened to me, which made me realize I don't have to be ashamed about what I'm going through, because 
the whole mental health issues that you get are no different from all the other feelings that people celebrate. People celebrate you when you say, I feel like a million bucks today. I feel like I could take on the world today. And even when you're not feeling well, those other issues and things that affect you, such as if you come to me and say, yo, I got a cold. Yo, D, I got a cold today. I don't go, get away from you. Don't say that, Mitch. You're weirdo, this and that. I'll give you some advice or even give you some things that'll help your cold. I don't look at you crazy when you say, yo, man, I'm feeling hot. I'll say, here, take this jacket off and let me turn on the air conditioner for you. Or if you're you're cold, I'll say, oh, here, put this blanket on you and let me turn up the heat. Or if you say you got a toothache, I'll go, yo, Mitch, man, you need to go get help for that right now. You need to go to the dentist. Or if you hurt your back, I'll be like, you'll go to the chiropractor, so on and so forth. But here comes this thing dealing with your mental health, your mental well-being. It seems like the physical, it's okay. But when it comes to the mental, oh, you got a problem. You have a problem. You shouldn't act like this. Why are you acting like this? Oh, suck it up and shut up. So what happened to me was people haven't, people after um, Jam Master Jay got shot and killed, people didn't see me as much. So they saw Run on TV for the last 10 years with his reality TV show, Run's House. And people told me from the first day, from the first season, D, we was expecting DMC to walk on the screen. So the first season goes by, DMC didn't show up. Second season, yeah, we know we're going to see D, let's run and run DMC. You know, we know Jay passed away. Second season, no D. Third season, no D. Fourth season, no D. Fifth season, no D. Sixth season, no Seventh season, no D. Eighth season, no D. So when people did see me, they would come up to me and say, yo, D, What's the problem between you and Run? Why you ain't on Run's house? And I would reply, honestly, because I've always been honest to y'all, there's no problem with me and Run. I just got out of rehab. What? Yeah, man, I'm an alcoholic, and I was drinking myself to death, and I just got out of rehab. I've been sober for three or four years. Now, really, this and that, yeah, man, I was... Man, I was in a bad place, man. I was an alcoholic, suicidal, metaphysical, spiritual wreck who was about to jump off the building. Now, their whole composure changes. Really? They start prying and asking me questions about that. And I'm giving them the truth, like I've always gave you the truth. And immediately after I would tell them, yo, I just got a rehab, I've been to therapy, and I was a suicidal, you know, wreck. They would go, yo, DMC, man, can you come talk to my father? Could you come talk to my mother? Could you come talk to the fireman? Could you come talk to the police officer? Even, yo, D, I have a seven-year-old daughter at home. Could you come talk to her? Because those people were living that life, letting those things go on to those other people, and they were just like me. They didn't know what to do. They were scared to go to the doctor. They were scared to go to the therapist. They were scared to ask for help. Because they wasn't worried about the condition of the person going through the mental health issue. They was worried about what people were thinking of. But now it's the mighty DMC talking about he's just like that person that they know. Yo, D, if you come talk to them, maybe we can have a breakthrough. So I started realizing there's two things with the mental health issue that allows the stigma to persist. And I came up with this. 
If you remove the guilt and the shame, you remove the pain. Because immediately people was like, yo, D, you talk about it so nonchalantly and so innocently and so sincerely. And then I also realized something, Mitch. My whole career, I've always told you when I was doing good. You know what I'm saying? It's Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. Pops cooking out. Uh, what else? Son of Piper, brother of Al. I'm DMC in the place to be. I go to St. John's University. Since kindergarten, I acquired the knowledge. After 12th grade, I went straight to college. I'm light skinned. I live in Queens and I love eating chicken and collard greens. I was always bragging about how good I felt. I realized that me talking about how bad I felt was doing a greater service to people than me bragging about everything being all right. And I just noticed that people need to realize it's good not it's cool not to it's cool not to feel okay and you're not alone. So what had happened um, after about the hundredth and fiftieth time, somebody came to me and said, "Yo, D, why are you in a run's house?" And I gave the answer. People started asking me, "Yo, come to the group home to speak. Come to the um, come to the to the mental health conference and speak." Um, come to the um, 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 come to the convention and speak. Come to the school and speak. Come to the firehouse and speak. And I was doing a lot of that, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't, you know, on a national scale. Nobody really knew. You know, everybody everybody's question was like, why are they in a run's house? What's the beef for run? Of all the things they can be worried about what's going on with me. Instead of saying, where's DMC? Is he all right? Why are they in a run's house? So it's just that whole drama thing that people seek. Um, after doing that a whole bunch of times, somebody said, yo, D, you should write a book. And at first I said, no, nah, I don't want to write a book. But then they said, yo, D, with the book, you can reach so many people without even having to show up. So that's the thing, Mitch, that made me write the book. I realized that people needed a voice speaking for them that wasn't a person studying or examining mental health. Somebody who actually went through it and then the killer is the mighty king of rock. We saw DMC his whole career. And the cool thing is when I went to rehab to stop drinking is when I discovered therapy. And when I got into therapy, therapy let me know I've been thinking like this for over 30 years. But I just didn't know what to do. So when I became an alcoholic, I was drinking because I didn't know how to uh, even attempt to address my issue. Right. So, so let me ask you about this then. Be- is that a struggle that continues today? Is that because the one thing with mental health is that sometimes there there isn't a cure, and it's something that you got to sort of keep in check all along, and and make sure that right. you're around a good group of friends and a support group. Exactly. Because you look at Demi right. Lovato, for example, she yeah. just sort of had a a, a relapse and. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about that that'll, struggle. That'll, yeah, that'll always happen. Like, the, the thing, the, the struggle for me began when I stopped being who I am. Now, and, and that can go, my, mine's is just an example. This could be the businessman. This could be the doctor, the lawyer, the teacher. This could be the everyday person working at nine to five. This could be the plumber. You know, we all want to be great and we all want to be the best that we can be. And sometimes we all look outside of ourselves for what is really success and what's really the blessing 
and what's really your power. So I come into this music business not because I want to be famous. I come into this music business, it's just, I just want to write some rhymes. You know what I'm saying? I want to write some rhymes. I want to be like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and the Zulu Nation and Cool Modi and the Cold Crush Forum Seas and the Treacherous Three, all of the, um, the, pie, the real pioneers of hip hop that I grew up listening to before Rapper's Delight was ever made. Now Rapper's Delight comes out and now we get to make records just like all the iconic rhythm and blues, rock stars, country, folk music, and R&B, and disco stars we grew up as little kids, hearing on the radio and seeing our mothers and fathers dance to. And hip-hop for me was just a release. Let me release all the thoughts and ideas that I got inside of me. And when I did that, the first record was a hit. Whoa, this is crazy. Then we did it again. Second record was a hit. Whoa, this is, yo, let's keep going. So we put out the album. The album goes gold. Whoa, let's make another album. We put out the next album. It goes double platinum. Whoa, let's do another album. Then we put out the infamous Raising Hell. We get a Adidas, an Adidas endorsement, and we do the, um, the world-changing Walk This Way with Aerosmith, which didn't just change music. It changes the world. So now all and, of a sudden, and if I can add, yeah. it it saves yeah. Aerosmith's career because I was an Aerosmith yeah. fan at that time, and right. you know their right. album "Done with Mirrors" had come out, and it sort of was like right. nobody cares, and uh, we thought no, it was over, and then "Walk yep. This Way" hits, and I remember seeing Something you. I think it was on CNN or something with with the band being interviewed, and all of a sudden yeah. it's like, oh, 1987 is very kind to Aerosmith, and it starts, and then some. Right. Yep. But it starts with with raising hell. So, so okay. Exactly. So that so that happens, and then um, what had happened was now instead of me just being Daryl, that people are coming to me. Outside entities is coming to me saying, "D, you need a hit record. D, you need to be on the radio. D, you need." They're telling me stuff that I need. But I'm doing it because I don't need to do anything just to be happy. So now somewhere in the back of your mind, you start living to please other people. And that's what started my fall into the pit of depression. So to, um, to suppress those emotions, when I went into therapy, I was diagnosed with suppressed emotions. I was feeling my way, but I, 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 I stopped feeling good about who I am and started doing things to please other people, which didn't make me feel good. But in order to continue doing that, instead of just getting up and reading a comic book and going to write a rhyme and sitting down and listening to um, Neil Young, I would pick up a 40-ounce of Old English because that's the thing that's going to get me through doing for somebody else instead of doing for myself. There's a selfishness that is necessary for the survival of every human being. And that selfishness is putting yourself first. And a lot of the dilemma with doing that is a lot of us are married. A lot of us love our family and a lot of us love our kids. But you got to get to the point where you got to realize if I'm not right, 
my relationship with my kids, my family, my career, my business, and my loved ones will never be right. So I had to get myself to that point. Whoa, whoa, wait. If Daryl ain't right, none of this works. It's going to work. But I didn't discover that until I was laid up in the hospital with acute pancreatitis because I, was, I wasn't just drinking one 40-ounce of Old English 800 malt liquor or two or three a day. I was drinking a case a day in order to, in order to cope with this so-called wonderful life that everybody from the outside thought was, thought was great because it's easy for me to get up on stage and do my King of Rock records and my Adidas song. I like doing that. What I didn't like was all the other bull crap that is behind the doors that people don't see because they ain't in the business. Yeah, and, and what goes on behind the business or in the uh, behind the scenes is, is is sometimes very very insidious. Um, yeah. So, so, what are some of the solutions we can offer? Because if somebody's listening to this, they're having a tough time at yeah. work, or the wife is there, whatever, or or the husband is yeah. whatever, or they're a. T- what yeah. are some What are some of the ways we can reach out? Because you know what, there is like we said that stigma. If you come up to me and say, "Hey, Dara, how's it going?" and you go, "Good." You know, if you give me another answer, most people just walk away. You go, oh, I'm not feeling right. My my head. You go, oh, all right. You know, how, right, do, we, right. how do we how do we get rid of that stigma? And, and and do we just is it just money that we have to throw at the at the at the problem and and just no, get no, more services? No, a lot of people don't. Have, that's a great question. A lot of people don't have the resources. I got that question. It was like, oh, D, you mighty DMC, you can afford to go to therapy. What if you don't? The answer to that first question is there's always somebody. There's always somebody that in the deep darkness of your depression, of your misery, of your despair, there's always somebody that you can think of who, if it doesn't bring a smile to your face, it brings a smile to your soul. And you might say, that's the only, but when you, you know, there's always somebody you think of that just makes you feel good. That's the one person that you got to reach out to and say, yo, I need to tell you, so I need to tell you something that I've never told anybody in the world. And the reason why I say that a lot of times we don't speak up like me. I didn't want people to think I'm a psycho or knucklehead going crazy or, or weirdo. But here's, here, here's a clicker. And it raps because I'm one of the, it rhymes because I'm one of the greatest rhymers in the world. If you don't admit how you feel, whether good or bad, you will never heal. Let me say that again to everybody listening. If you don't admit how you feel, whether good or bad, you will never heal. There's nothing wrong with somebody saying, I don't want to live no more. Why? Because that's the way they feel today. What's been wrong? With somebody making that statement since this world has been in existence is the reaction of other people to the person saying that. When I was going through my depression, because you got to understand what happened to me. I found out that I was adopted at age 35. Jam Master Jake got shot and killed, and then my father died. So all in this matter of the same time. So you got to know there was a lot going on with me. And I, I discovered by talking about how I really felt about those things was the only thing that was going to allow me to find the person, place, or thing, or the path so that I could heal myself. The whole stigma exists because people are ashamed to speak up. And for those people who don't have the resources, there's always somebody 
that you have to be confident enough to say, I'm going to go tell this person what I'm going through because they're the only ones that a lot of kids don't want to tell their mothers. A lot of kids don't want to tell their fathers. A lot of kids don't want to tell their brothers and sisters. Like there was one kid that I said, sometimes when you're real, real sad, like I don't want to tell a kid that he's depressed. So I say, sometimes when you're really sad, is there anybody that you can think of who you would want to talk to? It was no. at a middle school. And hold on, and the little kid said, yeah, the library teacher. And I said, okay, the next time you have a library, go up to Miss McGillicuddy or whatever her name was, I forget her name, and say, Miss McGillicuddy, excuse me, there's something I need to tell you that I haven't even told anybody. And the little kid went and did that. And then the teacher calls me back a couple of months later, and she says, yo, um, I forgot the kid's name, um, Randy or, or, or Rodney, went and told, did what you said to do to the teacher. And Rodney said, when he, when he told the teacher that, the teacher said, oh, my God, Rodney, me too. And the courage is to be able to speak about it because when you're going through something, you think you're the only one. And See, I've and that's the thing, that right? You're not the only one. Exactly. Yep, that's the whole thing. Now, let me ask you this because as a musician and and – you know, like you said, we've all gone through times where life's a little – you see life a little grayer than it needs to be, and, and I've been there of too. it happens to all of us, yeah. And, and my go-to has always been music. You pull out that one Kiss album that's always been special to you or that one Metallica album or that whatever, and you go, yeah, mother right. – um, as a musician, yeah. talk to me about the, the healing power of music, because I'm sure there's somebody listening to this that will pull out Raising Hell and go, oh, yeah, mm, and they're ready to fight the world once once the album's done. Um, so just, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I had people tell me, I had people tell me, O.D., you're Raising Hell or King of Rock. Will Wheaton, Will Wheaton, <laughs> my man Will Wheaton, um, big, big, big time pop culture comic book movie guy, came over to me crying at a Comic-Con because he was just so, he said, yo, King of Rock saved my life. Like, he was just yes. saying, there was something about the King of Rock album, but then he was like, yo, D, there was just something about your part that was crazy, you know, crazy to me. And I've had a hundred people, I mean, thousands of people tell me, yo, Sucker of C's got me through the hardest parts of my life. You know, um, Ahmad, D, this, this, and that. So there's just something that I always say, I always say music succeeds where politics and religion fails. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. And now even further, music can succeed where a lot of medical solutions fail. You know what I'm saying? Because think about music is about feeling. So most of these people going to something, it's not that there's actually something wrong with them. There's something wrong with them making them feel a certain way that affects their mental. Like even if your depression is chemical, there's a, there's a study that says, you know, chemically there's something in the brain that causes depression. You know, there's a right, depression, a spirit, right. That imbalance. But think about it. There's always a trigger. There's always something to cause those chemicals to start flowing. And a lot of times people are afraid to see the, 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 what is the thing causing me to feel this way? So the one thing that music does is it allows you to experience all your feelings at once. So when you start realizing, when you're looking at your mental, you'll be like, oh, my mental state just has a cold today. 
but from people who don't feel the way that you feel, you're just a weirdo. Like when I was feeling the way that I was feeling, Run and Jay would tell me, yo, D, don't feel like that. You're a DMC. Or they would ask me, why do you feel like that? I'm like, I don't know. But as soon as somebody says, don't feel that way or you shouldn't feel that way, they become the enemy. So then the wrong thing that we do, but it's the only thing that we know to do to protect ourselves, is we isolate ourselves. Like when I was feeling depressed, I would go to a different hotel other than the, the crew was going to. But that's the worst thing that I could have done because now I'm like, they at the Hilton, I'm at the Marriott, but I'm laying there saying I'm the only one in the world feeling this way. Like you said earlier, you know what I'm saying? You're thinking that. But now when I speak about what I'm going through, I realize there's a billion people just like me going through something. That's why I say you got to remove the guilt and the shame. Yeah, and, and it so, really... I mean, it, it's, hard, it's hard for some people, but you anybody out there listening, find somebody who will find somebody even... You know, it could be far-fetched, too. You'd be like, okay, this is my cousin's best friend. I'm going to go up to this person and sit him down and say, I need to tell you this. Because I guarantee you, when you release it, when you release, I feel this way, I don't want to live no more. Everything that will allow you to not feel that way will be opened up unto you. Even if it is smothered in the stigma of the so-called normal world world saying that you're a weirdo or a psycho yeah and i agree with that and you know another thing that i that i would put out there for folks is you know sometimes a relationship breaks up or you make a mistake at work or something, and then you get into these deep dark thoughts or oh my god i'm no good and and i right. think and at least for me when that happens because i'm not perfect i make mistakes i don't get down on them i look at them as okay i have now just learned what not to do the next time. And, and you just got to exactly. keep moving forward and taking those challenges that we all face right. and see them right. as learning experiences. Like, I, I watch people around me lose it because the next album after Raising Hell didn't do what Raising Hell did. And, you know, I felt a certain way about it, but I didn't speak up. When I got out of therapy... My therapist said this to me. He said, D, from now on, express how you feel. No, and don't worry about the person's reaction. They could get mad. They could take it in a disrespectful way. They could get angry. They're going to look at you funny. And you also got to be open for them to give back to you the way they feel. But what I was doing, I was holding in, expressing how I felt about certain things. One of the first questions that my therapist asked, and this is all in my book, one of the first questions that my therapist asked when I went into rehab and I started doing therapy was, Daryl, during your career at Run DMC, did Run J. Russell or anybody around you from the record company or anything ever do anything to upset you? And I sat back and I said, no. So my therapist, I think I was like 30, I was like 35 years old when I was in therapy. And my therapist, he was about a 46-year-old white guy. He took his glasses off. He put down his, 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 his um, yellow notepad and pen and paper. And he looked me in my eye and he said these words to me. He said, you a goddamn motherfucking liar. And that went down through my eyes into the core of my soul. 
And right in the middle of this first therapy thing, I just bust out, yeah, man, in 1985, I saw this happen. In 1986, Run did this. In 1987, Jay did this. In 88, 89, 90, 91, 90. I was holding all of these emotions in about the way that I felt. He said, D, all you had to do was release it. If it wasn't an event, if it was a song, if it was anything that people was going to make you do, you should have sat up, stood up and said, yo, in order this for in order for this to work, I got to feel good about what I'm doing. See, our whole life as human beings is about feeling. Some people can feel good at being the worst pieces of crap on the face of the earth. Me, I can't do that. So all of the backstabbing, lying, conniving, evil, greedy stuff that I saw in my career, I would just go sip the alcohol so I didn't have to address that. When my therapist said, all you had to do was speak up and let your point of view be known about how you felt. And I looked back and I said, really? And he said, there was a lot of times that I wanted to walk away, but I didn't because I was worried about what running Jay was going to say. He said, D, all you have to do is say, yo, if this can't, if this can't be done in a way that I feel good about doing it, I'm leaving. And the first thing people would say is, yo, D, you're going to walk away from all this money? And my therapist said, you're damn right. You look at him and say, yep, I'm going home to read my comic books because that's what makes me feel good. I'm only making money because I feel good about rapping and rocking. I'm not making money because I'm, I want to make money and I'm going to do whatever I can to make money. I really feel good about touching people's lives and giving a positive message and, um, 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 you know, inspiring and motivating people. I don't want to be on a cover of the magazine. I don't want to be on MTV. I don't want to be on the radio, but because I feel good about doing those things, that's how I got there. Now you're telling me I need to do this, rap a little bit more this way, do this, put a little more curses. Like if you listen to Run DMC's future albums after Razor's L, instead of us just being Run DMC, we were trying to be Run DMC because of other people's expectations about what we were doing when we were feeling good about who we were. So my thing is now is I will never, I don't need to take another drink because I know what to do. I just want to get up, read a comic book, go make a song with Slaves on Joke and invite Chuck D over. And that's the whole thing. It's not about let's do the Slave on Dope record and get Chuck D so we can be millionaires and be rich and famous. No, we made the record and it's done. So yeah. now I can call Jason Rockman and let's go make another one. You know, yeah. the, 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 the Bible and, and all the spiritual books, the Quran, the kingdom of heaven is like kids. We, you just want to have fun and I want to share. You could have a piece of my sandwich. You could have some of my M&Ms and this and that. I was seeing things being done that were contrary to who I was as a person. And it's just like you said, Mitch, in order to fit in, in order to be accepted, in order to um, be allowed to participate, we change who we are. Unless we express, unless every person expresses the truth about who they are, they will never, ever be all right. And, and that's what I've discovered. Yeah, and, and that's the, the reason why I wrote the book. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm Daryl McDaniels. The king of rock and DMC will never be all right if Daryl McDaniels isn't all right. The preacher, the teacher, the plumber. You know, my book has me doing a lot of speaking engagement at medical conferences and, and stuff like that. And one time I did a, a podcast for um, 
um, New York University, NYU has its own podcast medical station on Sirius FM. And I went on there with the doctor lady and I was talking and she said, yo, D, your book is phenomenal. You know, it's better than all the medical books and all the spiritual books and stuff like that. And she said, yo, D, your book is going to help a lot of doctors. And I'm like, what do, what do you mean? She said, a lot of doctors commit suicide and a lot of doctors abuse substances. And I'm like, what's going on? And I've discovered to so the doctor, it's, it's, it's summed up like this. Not all of you are going to be Dr. Sales. All you can do is wake up every morning and do the best that you can for your patient. Not all of you are going to save the people in every operation. Not all of you are going to cure every disease and every, 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 every epidemic. But all you can do is wake up and do the best that you can and do it in a way that you love. But when you start living up to other expectations, that's when you start feeling a certain way. And we all substance abuse because there's something that we don't want to deal with. There's something that we're ashamed of. And there's something that we are trying to hide. I agree with all that. And of course, 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide is the book. And I just, you know, I just want to remind folks, people always think, well, if I had more money, I would be happier. And and you look at Robin Williams and Anthony Bourdain and all that stuff. And it's not Come true. On, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really about what you said. So let, let's just quickly finish here today with... Yes. What really gets to you, and it's the DMC-comics.com, so you're the Daryl Makes Comics comic line, yep. comic book line, because it really yep. – it, it's not about having, you know, $100,000 or a million dollars or – And the hit record. It's not even about having a hit no, record. It's like about that. having what a passion. Yes. Right. What are you passionate about? You know what I'm saying? So here's, here's the crazy thing. My whole career, when I came into this business – my whole career, my whole foundation, even my power was based on the love that I have for superheroes and comic books. I became the son of Byford, brother of Al, banners my mother and runs my pal. It's McDaniels, not McDonald's. These rhymes are Daryl's, those burgers are Ronald's. I ran down my family tree, my mother, my father, my brother, and me. I became the son of Bifrit, and people are pulling their hair out now saying, I always knew there was something, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I am the son of Bifrit because of Thor. Thor is the son of Odin from Asgard, who has a brother named Loki and a father named Odin. You know what I'm saying? He got a hammer. And I was sitting there one day, if, if Thor is the son of Odin from Asgard with Loki and Odin, my name's Daryl Mc... In real life, I'm Daryl McDaniels from Hollis, Queens, New York. Bifrit's my mother. Ben is a... So I just wrote a story about it, and I spoke that story to the world. Now, everywhere when I walk the earth, people call me son of Piper. They call me king. They call me devastating mic controller. My whole foundation, presentation, and presence in, in music and in rock and roll, Mitch, I was just pretending, and this, and this is key. I was just pretending and making believe that I was the son of Piper, the mighty king of rock. Now... I look and see, wow, it really came true. But what had happened was when I got into this business, I put who I really was to the side. I put my comic books down and I picked up the bottle of Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels and Jim Beam became my best friend instead of my imagination being my best friend. 
So when I got out of rehab, I'm like, okay, I'm not drinking no more. I got a clear understanding about who I am and what makes me feel good. And the whole comic book thing came about, remember I said we all think we're alone? We think we're alone in the bad, and we think we're alone in the good things. Like, I'm the only guy that reads comic books, so I'm not going to tell nobody because people think geeks and nerds ain't cool. So, Mitch, I went to a music meeting, and I sat down in the music meeting. And at this music meeting, I was, uh, um, let me see, four, I mean, 14 years sober. And this music meeting, I was 11 years sober. And I sat down in the music meeting with an executive up at Atlantic Records, Big Willie Warner Atlantic Records. And when I sat down, the young executive that I was meeting with named Riggs Morales, he says, yo, DMC, I usually don't act like a fan. I'm usually very professional. And he used these words, Mitch. He said, yo, but D, man, you was like my superhero growing up, man. Your music and your rhymes. I was a little kid from the Bronx, New York, man. And, you know, the Bronx was burning. And me and my mother and father, we was living in public housing. And we was in um, um, shelters every night because, you know, the, the Bronx was on fire. And all I had was my comic books when I was a kid. And then hip-hop came along and I had my run DFC. And he just asked me, yo, D, what was it like when you was a kid? And I said, uh, well, all I did was read, collect, and draw comic books. We sat there for three hours and we talked about comic books. And he was the guy that said, yo, D, man, you should do a comic book. And I thought about it. And I realized that my imagination from the comic books allowed me to be this great entity on stage with Running Jay. But I was so ashamed of it that I subliminally put it into my music. Like if you listen to King of Rock, the Easter eggs was always right in front of y'all, but I cleverly put it in there. When Run says, I'm DJ Run, I could scratch, because he was a DJ that rapped and he knew how to DJ and scratch and quickly. He says, I'm DJ Run, I could scratch. 1985, I didn't say, I'm, DJ, I'm DMC, I could rap. My truth came out, I'm DMC, I could draw. And everybody's like, yeah, he did say that. And then there's another rhyme on there when I say crash through walls, come through floors, bust through ceilings and knock down doors. Rappers don't do that. Superheroes do that. But what I'm trying to say is I spoke those words and what did Run DMC do in the industry? So the very thing that made me the productive, positive, cool individual that didn't need no outside assistance from any substances to make me feel good was the very thing that I realized, I got to go back to that. I got to go back to that. So it's like, it's like the story you told me about the kid with the oranges. I want to tell everybody out there, I got a new song called Special. And it talks about me being DMC, the guy who almost jumped off the building, realized that I don't care what the other superstar do. I don't care how much money that person got. I don't even care if that person got more likes and followers than me. I know I am special because I am specially made who I am, and I am unique, and nobody else could never be me. I got a rhyme on another song that says, I'm sick and tired of the pain and the hurt. I do this for Chester, Chris, and Kurt. Death is appealing with death I flirt. I tell you how I feel, and you think I'm a jerk. I'm not bugging, I'm struggling. All this guzzling is puzzling. So I stopped hanging with Jack and Jim to fight in a battle that we all can win. The bottom line for me, DMC, is I'm the king of rock, the son of Bifred, 
Banner's my mother. Alpha's my brother. Um, I'm the devastated Mike controller. But my my um, my most important representation to anybody when I step on a stage, when you put on a pair of Adidas, or you see me in a video, is that I'm living, breathing proof for all of you people going through something that you can beat and defeat whatever it is that you're struggling against. The King of Rock thing was just a setup for what I was really here, put here to do, to represent all of you who feel that you're alone. And if you do feel that you're alone, if, if you really feel that way, I got another thing to add to you feeling alone. DMC is one of you too. So if that, if you don't want to be involved with the multitude, I'm here to tell you the truth. You may feel I'm the only one going through this. You're not alone because I'm going through it too. Absolutely. Powerful, powerful words. And, and uh, for folks wondering, the uh, the orange story I, I told Daryl off the air, I will share that yeah. with you. It, it is uh, one powerful. of these moments. It's a powerful story that, that happened to me back in 1994 and, and, and very much worth uh, sharing. And uh, Dee, just absolutely wonderful. I just I, I love having you on here. I love that you and Jason hit it off. I love the music you've done. Yes, man. Um, you know, I love the fact that, that, that you're, that you're into hard rock and heavy metal and, and boy, yes. you know, when I was 1986, how old was I? I was 18 or 19 around then, back then. Wow. When, when Walk This Way came out and, and uh -huh. Aerosmith got reborn thanks to you guys, cause I was a fan of Aerosmith and, and they were dead in the water and that song. Yeah. Everybody said that. Everybody was telling us that, Mitch. It's crazy. So, yeah. So, so for, for, as an Aerosmith fan, thank you for that. But as a music fan, thank yep. you also because it just, it it was one of those turning points where the whole industry went what rap rock together yeah, yeah, what yeah people, yeah people say that when Steven Tyler takes that mic stand and knocks down that wall that was separating us in the video they go yo D man I'm talking about black white Puerto Rican rock metal punk um, orchestra classical music anybody that just loves music they say yo D man that didn't just happen in the video that happened in the world. Yes. And that's the example that I want to give to those people. You know, I, there was a, everything that happened to me happened for a reason, but it was a bigger reason that I was the third member in that group to allow that thing to happen. And think about it even more importantly, it was done through the, through the, through the arts, through music. You know what I'm saying? And like I said, music succeeds where politics and religion fails. Oh, I agree. It, it, it wasn't a metaphoric breaking down of a wall. It, right. it really was a right. real real uh moment that you could feel and and and, and was tangible yep. um before we wrap up let's just remind folks that 10 ways not to commit suicide is out it came out in 2016 but it, it is just an important read so do yourself a big favor and go check that out it because you know oh, yeah. and also mitch yeah also mitch I, we have the audio book read by me yeah have the audio version if you don't have time to read it go get the um, audio version of it yeah, and I and I want folks to know that maybe you're not feeling that way, and you think, well, the book's not for me. I don't feel that way, but trust me, there's yeah, probably some, someone. There's somebody yep. in your yep. circle, and this is going to uh, give you the tools awesome. that when they say to you, "I'm yep. not feeling right," you'll go, "Aha, I've got it." Yep. And uh, D, absolute pleasure. Next time you're in Montreal, let's let's all go out, you, me, Jason, and let's let's just hit the town. And uh, always, always a pleasure. Uh, as we say up here, Definitely. merci beaucoup. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Merci beaucoup to all of you out there in Montreal, and I will see you very, very soon. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a very big thank you to Daryl McDaniels for that very, very enlightening chat. Always, always a great pleasure to talk to Dee. Just one of my favorite uh, guys to talk to. He just always great stories, a lot of great content. Rob, welcome back. How are you? Doing great, Mitch. Good, good to be here. Still good to be here. Now, I oh. have brought in Denny Sywell from Paul McCartney's band. He, of course, was on... Um, Red Rose Speedway, Wildlife, the Ram album, and played on the soundtrack to the James Bond movie, Live and Let Die. He, of course, played on the song Live and Let Die. And I figured since I had you here and you are a drummer, then I needed to have a drummer on the show. And anybody who's played with Paul McCartney, right, you got to sort of tip your hat to it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and yeah, one of, uh, one of his drummers actually... Joe English is from Rochester, so a uh, little tip of the hat to my hometown here in Rochester, New York. Um, he played on, what, Venus and Mars, and then he's played on uh, the live Wings yeah. Across America CD, and he was on the live video, and I don't know what else, but uh, yeah, so fellow Rochesterian played with Paul McCartney as well. So. Yeah, so so Joe English, as you mentioned, from Rochester, played on Venus and Mars, Wings at the Speed of Sound, Wings Over America, and London Town, but uh yeah, so I, so I got Denny on, and he, and he was on these these early ones, and of course, Live and Let Die, which we talk about in the interview. We we talk about recording that. We talk about the Guns N' Roses version, but he has a new album out coming out September seventh with the Denny Sywell trio called Boomerang, and so I do uh, hope fans will check that out. It is actually a jazz album, um, but I, you know, even though this is rock talk with Mitch Lafon, I just had to get him on because anybody who's played on a song like Live and Let Die deserves or has a spot on a rock show. That's what I think. So looking back to those early days, right? Isn't it? Yeah, man. One of my favorites. Yep, absolutely. Well, okay. So let, let's start there again as a drummer. Um, just to quickly talk to me about Live and Let Die and, and, and the way it builds up and the you know, it's and that Guns N' Roses version, uh, Matt Sorum just, he nails it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they did a, a really good uh, tribute to the original song. You know, I'm a huge, huge James Bond fan, and Live and Let Die was probably my favorite one growing up. And that song just, you know, I mean, I was a huge Paul McCartney and Wings fan growing up. You know, songs like Live and Let Die and Let Him In and all that kind of stuff was you know, like gospel to me when I was a kid. And um, so, yeah, great song, such dramatic drumming, dramatic playing, you know, in that one. And, uh, you know, you got to tip your hat to, to Denny on that. You know, he's, he just nailed it, you know, just great song and good stuff. I love I love that uh, Paul McCartney early music and uh and, and also one of my favorite records he played on too was billy joel's cold spring harbor and uh you know before liberty devito you know he was in billy's band at least doing that record and uh like the stuff he did there too so a lot of good stuff yeah and, I, and i'm glad you mentioned that because we actually talk about playing with uh billy joel during the interview and playing on that album so we're going to get content on that he of course has done stuff with james brown art garfunkel uh joe cocker donovan john denver Etc. Etc. I mean, right? I mean, th those are just the names of rock history, and he's played with them. I mean, how how cool yeah. is that? Now, yeah. have you ever ventured into jazz playing, or, or 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 are you able? 
to play the jazz style, for the lack of a better word. I know that sounds sort of pedestrian the way I, I set set that up, but <laughs> but our, our right, it's, it's different to be a rock drummer and a jazz drummer, right? Well, it's two completely different feels uh, as far as playing the drums, and I'm not going to you know admit to being a great jazz drummer at all. So, um, do I like some jazz? Sure, I, I like more of the progressive jazz stuff, like a lot of uh, the stuff Steve Smith has done over the years. Simon Phillips has done over the years. Um, of course, Buddy Rich, you know, probably the best guy, best drummer that ever lived. Um, you know, but I can't play like that. It's just, you know, I love it, but I, you know, <laughs> I'll just admit it right here. It's it's something that I, uh, am not an expert at and I kind of hack around. I have a set of brushes and I play a little bit, but it's, it's not my forte. So, right. But, but, but I that... do appreciate it. And that speaks to the talent that is Denny, because if you can handle Live and Let Die and then go do an album like Boomerang, which is jazz, and then you can go play with James Brown, which is sort of, you know, funk, and then you can get over to, to Joe Cocker. And the, the fact that he can diversify and hit all these different styles of drumming, drumming just shows that he's the real deal. I mean, that's... That's, Absolutely. That's, yeah. That's that's incredible. So, let us listen to Denny, and uh, well, here we are. Here is the one and only Denny. We are speaking with drummer Denny Sywell. The new album, Boomerang, comes out September seventh with the Danny Sywell Trio. Good day, Denny. How are you? I am excellent. How are you, Mitch? Good, good. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. Now, it's not very often that on a rock show we are going to talk to a jazz drummer, but. <laughs> You do have connections to Paul McCartney and Wings, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. And so that's just very exciting. And, of course, some of the people that you've played with over the years, Joe Cocker, Billy Joel, James Brown, just these incredible artists. And so such a compelling, compelling story. So uh, let's just get started with this new album, Boomerang. Talk to me a little bit about that and, and putting it together and sort of the hopes with this album. Well, you know, I started out as a jazz musician in New York. I mean, my first gig in the city was I got the uh, the job down at the old Half Note, the famous old Half Note Jazz Club down on the Lower West Side. And I was a house drummer with uh, Al Cohn and Zoot Sims and Anita O'Day and Richie Kamuka and Bill Berry and all these. So I was I was the new kid in town working the famed jazz club, not making much money doing it, but uh, I was in with, with all my heroes, and the guys would come down Sunday nights on the night off, and they want to see who's a new kid in town playing with the masters. And, and from that, I just got some uh, re recording studio calls. You know, I started getting jingles and make records and stuff, so I was making some jazz records with, you know, J.J. Johnson and Kay Winding and Astrid Gilberto and, so I was catching on. <clears throat> Things were starting to get really good in my career, and, and that's uh, that's where I started. Then Paul McCartney came to town and auditioned, let's say, 10 of the the top guys in, in town that were doing all the best dates. And uh, I was, luckily, I'd made my way up to one of those. And he, in the audition, he just liked me and liked my playing and my attitude and hired me and it's funny how you play with one Beatle, and you can just about kiss your jazz career goodbye for a while. <laughs> right, right. Uh, okay, so now I, I do want to get into in depth into the uh, the Paul McCartney stuff, but I, I want to look sure. at some of the other stuff first because there's, there, well, there's so, 
Yes. Where I was leading with that was that, uh, you know, I've made a couple of hundred rock and roll records and stuff over the, right. the past, actually, 50 years this year, actually. Uh, but I'm, I'm at that point in my life where uh, I want to go back to my roots and playing jazz again. And I, I met these guys, John Cudini, the guitar player, and Joe Bag, the organist. I met them, oh, 10 years ago doing a little gig here and there. And then uh, I had a chance to bring a trio into a club. And pretty soon I brought these two guys in together one night. And I knew it was magic. And that was that. A trio was born. I mean, we had a, a real nice way of talking to each other musically. And so we don't play that much because everybody is so damn busy with their own personal schedules. But when we get together, it's always fun. And we did a, a little album, um, a home recording album that I did here in my house called Reckless Abandon. I think it was seven years ago. And so Boomerang just turned out to be a great opportunity, especially in this day and age where record companies aren't spending money on anything that's not going to be making them their money back immediately. You know, it's a very poor time in the business, but I had an opportunity from this new label, Quarto Valley Records, to uh, go into a proper studio, and uh, we went into NRG, which is one of the better studios here in town, recorded the album, and I called my friend Al Schmidt over at Capitol Studios, and Al's probably one of the best mixers in the world, and we mixed our album at uh, at Capitol Studios here in Hollywood, and then had it mixed by a friend, uh, mastered by a friend of mine, Howie Weinberg. And so the record, I'm just so proud of everything about it, from the from the choice of the material to the playing to the recording, uh, everything about it. I just saw the artwork for the package on the LP and the CD. And uh, it's it's beyond beautiful. It's just a very classy package, and I'm just thrilled and excited that uh, I got something uh, that I'm so proud of. Anyway, so it's re I really uh, appreciate the uh, the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, and, and you know what? With, with Boomerang and with the Jazz Trio up here in Montreal, we have this international jazz festival. I was just there with George Thorogood. I would love at some point to make sure you get up here and get get a chance to play it for the fans live because really at the end of the day when you make an album it's nice but i think right it's about getting in front of people and and oh, feeling yeah. right so oh, yeah um you know you, you did absolutely. mention absolutely right so now you did mention absolutely. all these rock albums that you've done as a drummer compare for me the style and your approach to a rock record and then coming into an album like boomerang and doing a jazz record I mean, are you just the drummer, or, or, or is really is there a different mindset, a different physical approach? Just just talk to me about the two styles. Oh, of drumming. well, I mean, I think I caught on as a studio drummer doing the rock albums because uh, my main influence was were guys like Ringo, of course, you know, Ringo, and, and uh, well, there's a handful of drummers to me, Keltner and Jeff Beccaro. There was a bunch of great drummers that I listened to for their rock style. And uh, they, they, they seemed to know how to play a song, play to a song. So that was my whole thing was uh, in New York in the early days when, when, when I was starting my career, uh, I just learned how to give them what they needed, not what I wanted to give them. And, and I think that was a big thing. And then when you go to the jazz genre, that's, that's a little bit different because within jazz, I mean, 
this trio has three separate voices, a guitar, organ, and drum, and we all get to speak. It's more of a, a loose format where we're actually playing the song, but we're seeing what we can do with the with the elements the uh, of the song, you know, the verse, the bridge, the choruses. We, we always know where we are within the song, but there's a lot more freedom to... Ooh, what's the word I'm looking for? To company, um, making a accompaniment comp- to somebody else's right. idea that was just thrown out. So that's what jazz is for me. It's like, it's we're all talking to each other. You, some guy will play something and that spurs you on to play something and that spurs them on to play, you know. And that's the fun with jazz. Whereas the, the pop stuff, the rock stuff, I mean, you're, you're I shouldn't say stuck, but you're expected to just play the, get the same part going for each verse, chorus, bridge. So right. get in a pocket and just sort of stick yeah. there. Right. Yeah. And, uh, it's just a lot more creative and a lot more rewarding. And yet we try to, this boomerang album isn't something that you'd need a degree to listen to it. Believe me, it's in your face. It's got groove. It's got pocket. It's got swing. It's got a lot of sambas in it. Uh, there must be four or five sambas, or maybe five or six sambas even. Uh, but I'm I'm really happy with the the content of this record, and and everybody in the trio reached deep into the well uh, when we recorded this thing. In fact, we <laughs> we read we all everything was charted out. We had three short rehearsals at my house here in L.A. and up, and uh, so we were reading charts on the date when we were recording this material because it's very challenging material. And uh, it's going to be fun to play it live. I must say, it's it's got its own life. I think. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, now, now on the rock records that that you played on, were a lot of them ghosting sort of positions where a rock band would come in and say, "We need to tighten this up, or we need a different sound," or are you sort of credited on? Because I mean, ghosting. Oh, not really. No. No, not really. I mean, the early days, uh, there wasn't much of that done at all. I mean. There is one album at the uh, 1975, I think, I, I made a record, the Janis Joplin record. Uh, right, with uh, a band. Uh, fa- Farewell Songs. Right. Uh, I, I, we were in San Francisco recording at, at His Master's Wheels for Elliot Mazur, who was a producer. Elliot got a call from the, the estate, and they had some live recordings of Janis that were brilliant, but the band was, there were problems in the recording of the band. Janis was, no, was perfect, on the money, and we went in and replaced Big Brother and the Holding Company. So it was really weird. I mean, yeah, we had Janice in the middle of our headphone mix. We had Big Brother on one side, and we had us on the other side of our headphone balance. And we just re- replaced some of the tracks that were unusable because of recording situations or whatever. But, wow. uh, yeah, so, but most of the time... Um, I went in, uh, in the early days, we went in as a band and, uh, it wasn't replacing a drum part. Although I've done that several times, but not for the majority of recordings, right? What's great is in the past, we used to go in with a whole band and, and play everybody play at the same time and feed off of each other. I mean, those days of recording are kind of dead well, and gone. Almost. Right. And I, and I think that's why we've, this is my own personal opinion, why we've lost a little bit of soul in, in the music. <laughs> well, a lot. I mean, you know, everything yeah. these days, especially the newer music with the auto tune and the pro tools and the fly this in and the yeah. fly, th- it's like, 
Well, the whole point yeah. is that they're supposed to be mistakes because mistakes give it character. And that's, you know, that's it's the sad, charm. Yes. Right? I'll never forget McCartney saying something when we were doing one of the first albums, I guess. Uh, we heard a, on a playback, we heard something that wasn't right, you know. And Paul said, well, why don't we explore the accident rather than fix the mistake? <laughs> right, exactly. And I, th- I thought that was great because we go in and we double track it and treble track it. And, you know, pretty soon that was your favorite part of the record. It was an accident, not a mistake. Yes, and and that's exactly what I grew up with. When you listen, and now, of course, I grew up more in the rock world listening to Black Sabbath and, and Kiss and, and Cheap Trick and those. And the mistakes are the charm. And that's, yeah. you know... Um, another thing that I grew up in back in the day, and, and you explain the story here, the, the TV show Happy Days, the Fawns, right? Yeah. You had some of your music on Happy Days, if I understand correctly? Oh, no, I was just hired as a drummer to go in and do a bunch of library dates where you go in, uh, you do music for their, their library, and then they use it whenever okay. they need, you know, they just have a library of music set up there. And they, they'll pull stuff from that library for each show and what have you. Gotcha. So if I watch the show, though, at some point, I've heard you. Yeah, you wouldn't. Uh, exactly. Exactly. You wouldn't know when, but uh, there it is. You know, unless you had a really good ear, you can usually tell me. <laughs> but but do you know when, when, you, when you've heard yourself? Oh, no. Uh, I've, if I heard myself on TV, I'd, I'd say, oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I'm on that. Because so I'll remember. I, it's one of the funny things. Uh, 50 years of recording. I remember, I mean, I'll, somebody else find a record that I was on back in the late sixties or something and bring it out and send it to me and I'll put it on and I, it won't be listed which tracks are, or who's drumming on each track, you know, but I'll put it on and I can hear, I remember songs and there was thousands of them, but I remember recording all of this stuff. Uh, that's why drummers are sick because we got this really weird memory <laughs> we've got this really re- yeah it's great now now another thing that you did and of course of course being from the rock world guns and roses covered a song called live and let die but you played on the original track uh live yeah. and let die mm-hmm. such a great song i'm gonna call it iconic because i think when you hear it you know you know what it is you know what it means you know who played it um, talk to me about that and approaching a soundtrack song with Paul McCartney and Linda and, and just making this song that became so known that one of these big bands later on, like Guns N' Roses, would cover it. Right. Well, that was Matt Sorum's idea. He was just a big fan of the track. And I think he talked the other guys into doing it. He just wanted to play that drum part. But uh, it's funny because uh, this is going to uh, freak a few people of your listeners out because uh, I watched Paul the the night before we we set out to do this thing. Paul said they just sent me the Ian Fleming novel, uh, Live and Let Die, and I, re- I read the book last night, and they want me to write a theme. So we're up at the house, and um, and he sits down at the piano, and I watched him compose a song. It, it was actually composed in 10, 15 minutes. You think, uh, James Bond, James do-do-do, do-do-do, some chase, you know. So he got a little chase scene going, they thought about a little melody. Having read the book before, the night before, he kind of had an idea what he wanted rolling around in his head, so he found a few bits, and then because it was a Jamaican scene in there with the boats and all that, he said, we need a little Jamaica music in there, too, so we threw that in. So he wrote this song in probably less than a half an hour. We're in the house. 
up there in London, and we got our drums and guitars and amps and stuff. So we start knocking it into an arrangement. So we start fooling around with it, and he changed a few things here and there. We spent a couple hours rehearsing, and we kind of got it the way we like it. I guess he recorded it and sent it to George Martin. George wrote the orchestral arrangement. And a few days later, we were in George's studio in London, live with a 40-piece orchestra. We were in and out of the studio playing live with the orchestra, fully mixed, overdubbed vocals, everything done in three hours. Wow. But you know what? When you look back in the history of music, a lot of these great songs that we remember forever, when they when the artist is interviewed, he goes, they'll always say, yeah, I wrote that in five minutes. Yeah, I wrote that. Oh, yeah. It came to me sure. in a dream. You know, the, these these yep. these concepts of overproduce and fix every little thing and spend 14 years. It's, it's right. Yeah. Some of the greatest stuff comes. It's inspiration. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, there was a period of time when bands would take a month to get a drum sound. Come on. Give me a break, guys. Yeah. Well, our first record, Wings' first album, uh, which is about to be reissued. Uh, they're doing a reissue on Wings Wildlife and Red Rose Speedway coming up very shortly. I'm not sure, but I was, I've been helping Paul with them. I mean, we recorded that record in a weekend, Wildlife, and then went in for a couple more days and just fooled around doing some overdubs, cleanups, mix, and all of that stuff. But that record was done inside of two weeks, ten business days for sure, you know. Yeah. And it was it's a pretty good record. But that's that's the I mean you, again from the rock world you look at Black Sabbath I think the first album was done like in 12 hours and here yeah. we are you know 40 years later going what a great album. And so all right so yeah. let's quickly talk about these two Paul McCartney albums and also Ram the one that came before um you know when Wings gets together and he, now Paul McCartney is not just going to be a solo guy it's going to be a band. So talk to me about the formation of this and being Wings and the pressure you felt, because regardless of what Paul or John or George or whoever did, they are going to be compared to what the Beatles did. So was that something that was on your mind? Was 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 it like, oh, God, I, I've got to compete against that catalog? How did you sort of? Well, of course, it's on it's on your mind. I mean, you understand that people are going to be comparing you to the last Beatles record they heard or the last Beatle performance they've seen. So, um Yes, it was definitely on our minds, but when we were in Scotland just putting this band together, I think Paul really laid out the groundwork. But, hey, look, we're just, I, I, I miss, miss being in a band. I'm going to give the world a new look at a new band. We're starting from scratch again. And so um, it was difficult in some regards, but he laid the groundwork, so we kind of all trusted what was going to happen. And when we did that first British university tour where there was no gigs, no hotels, no arrangements made, we didn't know where we were going. We had, we had really crappy equipment and we only had 11 songs that we could perform. We had to repeat songs <laughs> and we just set out and find a place. I mean, we, we were in the trenches together knowing that the press may say, what is this guy doing? Is he crazy? And uh, so we were all ready for it. And by the time the second tour came along and we'd had uh, Red Rose Speedway was released and we did a, a tour of Europe, it had grown into a band. We, we had Henry with us. We had a five-piece band and we, we rehearsed and we'd actually grown into a pretty good band and put on a good show. So, 
It was tough, but I, I, I must say that I was there in the best and the worst of times because it was the time when he had to uh, make a stand against his, his mates and the Beatles and uh, the court receivership and all of the, the ugly stuff that went down around that period of time. Yet here we were creating something brand new and having fun, I'm sure. That today, Paul's band is wonderful. I love the guys that are playing with Paul's new band. And new band, they're, they've been together 15 years or more. I mean, uh, it's pretty amazing. But I'm sure that they didn't have fun on the road, the kind of fun that we had when we toured in early wings, you know, yeah. with the wives, the kids, the dogs, no hotel reservations. Uh, I mean, we were, we were, even the European tour that followed that British University tour, I mean, that tour, we, we didn't stay in hotels. We stayed in castles. And, uh, right. you know, it was just, it was quite unique. It was, we had so much fun. And, and there, there was no serious pressure. We just wanted to see ourselves growing as a band and, uh, and, and presenting how we lived as a family in our music. And that's, that's what it was. It was great fun for most of it. Most of it was great fun. For most of it. And I'm assuming that when you're Paul McCartney, you don't really need a hotel reservation. If you show up at the Holiday Inn and say, hi, I'm Paul, they'll say, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well that's the way some of the gigs were. We'd pull up at a college and get the kid from the student union out. And, hey, is there a place we can give a show tonight or this afternoon? So said, no, the kids are in finals. And then we said, well, we got Paul out there in the van. He goes, what? Come here, and Paul would wave. Hey, hey man, how are you? <laughs> He'd say, okay, you guys can play tonight. So, uh, yeah, it was great fun, though, I must say. That's hilarious. Now, another great performer engineered that first album, that, that Wildlife album, Alan Parsons. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about Alan as well, because in a sense, or, or you know, looking back 50 years in history, you've got two great musical minds in the same room. I mean, Paul and Alan are just, right, they're a cut above, I think, the, the, right, everybody yeah. else? Well, uh, let me, let me I, I hate to do this. I mean, Alan is a sweetheart, but Alan was the second engineer. He was not the engineer on that record. It was Tony Price. He, he was getting his start back in the day, but still, still yes. great. He was, a, he was a, a staff engineer at EMI. He was, he was the, uh, the second engineer. So when you Price was oh, no when you turn on the uh, on the on the wildlife album and you hear this the tape machine beat going on and you hear Paul screaming take it Tony that was Tony Smith right so he was the actual engineer on that although you know Alan did work with us on on all of the wildlife and Red Rose Speedway apart from the stuff that we did in. Uh, in uh, at Olympic Studios when we worked with Glenn John. So uh, Alan was around for, for 90% of it. He was around all the time, though. And it's funny, our paths never crossed after I left. I, I, I congratulate him on, on doing as well as he's done. And, uh, and like you say, he's a, a brilliant musical mind. But uh, I, I, I lost touch with him and never, never saw him after I left the band. Oh, that's the, that's too bad. I I, I had a chance yeah. to interview him uh, last year, I think it was. So it was that was a great moment too. Um, going into the studio though with uh, Paul McCartney, do do you approach him as just being another musician in a band, or do you look at him for guidance and and knowing what he did in the decade previously, do you study him and say, okay, what's he doing and 
you know, does he approach well, stuff? Of course. Okay. You know, of course. You. I mean, he's just a. We. We were all. He wanted us to be a band. Everybody to have our our own uh, uh, viewpoint on what should come musically. He never told us what to play. Never told me. During the Ram album, he he directed me on one song, Uncle Albert, to change the part that I'd come up with. But other than that, it was open. Can uh, he gave me a, a a free canvas to, c to create my parts, and and that's why we worked well together because he liked what I came up with. However, I was just channeling Ringo or the way I heard Paul play drums on the records that he played on. So I knew that that's what he liked. So I would try to give him something in that vein, you know. So that was the the beauty of our relationship. Such a great relationship. Um, some of the other artists you've you've worked with include Donovan. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about working with Donovan because he's certainly very uh, attached to that '60s era, that early '70s era. We've sort of yeah. forgotten him about him a, a little bit now, but another great musical mind. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I just saw him uh, a year or two ago in, at one of the Beatle fests. I was invited in at one of the Beatle fests and spent some time with him. That was cute. I mean, uh, I did a record with Donovan. I think it was called uh, Essence to Essence or Yellow Star or something like that. I don't remember the title. Yellow Star. Okay. And it was right after I left, uh, the, like after Wings broke up. We were still in London and Andrew Oldham uh, called Henry and I both in on that record. I don't remember. I think Jean Rousseau was on it as well, but there were some kind of uh, not your London session players, but guys from bands that were available to make this record. And it was really a, it was a fun time. It was a great. I loved working with Andrew Oldham. I think he's a genius. Uh, I really and I stay in touch with Andrew all the time. He lives in Chile, but he's uh, he's in L.A. a lot, and we all, he always stops in when he, when he's in town, and we see each other. But great guy and uh, and donovan was just was you know yeah he's like that shining light to be around he's just one of those those uh people from the 60s that'll never die i mean he's just got that presence about him that's wonderful yeah he really is and uh we'll, we'll finish on this today you got to play on a couple of tracks on uh, billy joel's debut album cold spring harbor uh, right back from 71 uh, talk to me a little bit about those sessions and the and the two songs that you played on. Um, uh, you can't make me feel uh, sorry. You can make me free, and you look so good to me. What was that like? Because you know we all sort of know about Liberty Devito, and he's Billy Joel's drummer. But you well, were this there. was before. This was before. Yeah, it was before Lib, uh, and I love Lib. Lib is the best. Uh, Absolutely. No, Michael. Mike. You remember Michael Lang from the Woodstock Festival? Mm -hmm. Yep, of course. Michael, the guy on the motorcycle with the long hair. Well, Michael and I were very close in those days in New York, and I'd done some recording for him with Karen Dalton and different artists. And Michael called me up one day, and he said, I have this new artist that I'm thinking about recording. I want to send you the cassette, and if you like the demo, uh, I'd like for you to produce them. So I went, oh, that's cool. Send it over. So he sends me this demo, and it's just a, a guy singing and playing piano. So I hear it, and I freak out. I said, this guy is amazing. That was Billy Joel, of course. So Michael says, well, let's go. Let's put you in the studio. So I got some of my buddies uh, that I was making a lot of records with, uh, Andy Musan and Jerry Friedman, and I don't remember, the uh, maybe Paul Griffin or... 
Pat Rebelo on organ. But anyway, we went into a studio in uh, Long Island called U- Ultrasound. And we just started. Billy apparently had some, he had some problems, some life problems. And apparently his manager, Erwin Mazur, uh, set him up in a little apartment, rented him a spinet piano. And he wrote that album in, in a couple of weeks' time, I guess, Cold Spring Harbor. And so we go into the studio and uh, we just start recording and it was just an incredible situation. He was like a, he was very heavily influenced by McCartney. And so he was as thrilled to have me there as I was to see this kid's talent and try to get it on tape, you know? So we were recording and uh, I think we recorded three or four, well, four or five tracks maybe. And I get a, phone call from Paul and saying, uh, Hey man, uh, I need you back in London. And I said, Ooh, I'm in the middle of this project. And <laughs> I said, can it wait till I finish the tracks at least on this album? And he said, are you in the band or not? And I left and I just dropped the Billy Joel project and, and didn't have the, the common sense to uh, write up a business agreement or anything like that. So I, I don't even know if I got paid for the sessions to tell you the truth. And uh, that was a, a big blunder on my part. But, uh, and there's another guy after that the great time that we had working together. I, I never came across Billy Joel again in my life. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. But, but it's, it? it's amazing how, you know, the, the, the circle of musicianship and reporters, it, it's small and you sort of all bump into each other eventually. But sometimes when they're at this larger level, it's a whole different uh, sphere of, of, of people. True. It is true. And uh, what is true, of course, is Boomerang is out September 7th. Do yep. check that out. And uh, just a great pleasure. Absolutely great pleasure. And, and, and thank you for taking the time today. My pleasure, Mitch, and uh, I hope everybody enjoys the record as much as uh, we did enjoy making it, and we made it for our, you know, for a new audience out there. So, hop on board. <laughs> hop on board, and let's make sure that the the folks at the uh, Montreal International Jazz Festival hear this Ooh, and, and bring you up next I'm, year because that would be fantastic. I'd love that. All right, thanks, Mitch. Merci, merci. Thank you so much. Bye, <laughs> bye, bye, bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. And there you have it, folks. Another fun Phil show. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. Rob, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the experience. Yeah, Mitch. It was a blast. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, it's been fun keeping in touch over the last year or two via text. And always good to touch base in person. And hopefully we could do more if you'll need me to do and uh yeah absolutely now if folks need to find you online where where should they go well best spot would be go to my website which is simply www.robmount.com r-o-b-m-o-u-n-t.com and from there you can go to all my other social media stuff like facebook and instagram and twitter and my youtube page so you can get it all off the website Yes, and of course, this episode is going to air on August 6th, 2018, or originally aired on August 6th, 2018, and I, on August 6th, 1979, saw my very, very first show, the first of probably five or 6,000 shows I've seen at this point, and it was Kiss during their Dynasty tour at the Montreal Forum with 
New England opening up. So there you go. So a little a little celebration for me. Uh, what does that make it? Uh, 39 years, I guess, if my math is correct. And probably isn't. Wow. Right? 39, 40 years? It's my first show, too. Was it 79 or was or was it like 1975 or something? Are you going to make it? You're going to be cooler than me and say <laughs> that it was an earlier gig, right? No, I can't. It was actually in uh, 83 when they did the Creatures of the Night tour and uh, Night Ranger opened up. And uh, that was my first show. And you know, my my mom actually took me to the to the to the show. She wouldn't let me go by myself. So there you go. You can everybody can laugh at me. I went to my first concert with my mom. So well, there listen, you um, I'm with you. My mom took me to the first Kiss show. I mean, but look, how old was I? I was 11 years old. I mean, she, you know, you're not going to let me go downtown Montreal alone as an 11 year old, or yep. have or have me go with a buddy like two 11 year olds, right? <laughs> it, it, so. So yep. uh, now the fact that you were 25 when your mom took you, maybe that's a little different. No, no. How, <laughs> how old were you at that yeah, time? Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, in 83, I would have been – it was just before my 15th birthday because I was born in 68. So it was Paul Stanley's birthday that night, January 20th, 1983. And, and so there you go, right before my birthday. Oh, so that's so, – so okay, well – 15 and your mom you know no i'm kidding yeah no, no it's great because it, it's a great memory to have right to, to have gone to that now uh, uh i also i also saw that creatures tour so you saw it in january i'm trying to think when when the creatures tour rolled into my, it might have been actually around january 10th or something like that. so so we saw we saw them around the same time but up here we got a canadian band called the head pins to open up and uh. um yeah, it was it was it was it was an event, and I I remember specifically on that creature show that Vinnie Vincent went into this elongated solo, which felt like it lasted about half an hour, though it probably was like <laughs> nine minutes or so. But you know, uh, yeah. great great memories, and and you gotta love Kiss, and of course. If Gene and Paul ever called you and said, "Put on the cat makeup," I'm sure you'd go because you'd be a fool to. Hell yeah! Right? I mean, I love when people always say, "Oh, you replacement players and fake kisses." Like, no, 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 dude. If somebody calls you or Gene calls you and says, "Put on the makeup and hop in the band," you'd be stupid not to do it. So, more power to Kiss and more power to Kiss fans and Eric and Tommy and all of them. Rob, great pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Mitch. I had a blast. It was great talking to you. And we shall definitely do this again soon. I will try to line up more drummers so we can have all drum episodes. That that sounds like fun. Hey, that's a great idea. Sounds good. And, of course, robmount.com. Do check out the Dead Daisies on tour. And, of course, keep checking out Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon right here on Westwood One. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.